What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and today I'm recording from the road in a hotel room that's not very conducive uh, to recording audio, but I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, the coolest siblings ever, one making their return to Turned Out a Punk after... The best episode of this podcast, episode six, way back when, in 2014, the other making their debut on Turned Out of Punk, but together, this is a monster, Jeff and Stephen McDonald from Red Cross. More on that in one second, but oh my gosh, am I excited for you to hear this one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, who is the show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. He also runs a Facebook page and an Instagram page for this podcast. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this thing. You can find me on social media at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, you can support the show by telling all your friends about it. You can also pick up a t-shirt at turnedoutapunk.com. Thank you to everyone that does do that. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. As I mentioned, we are currently on tour. You can find out where we're going to be next over at fuckedup.cc. Come up and say hi. We talk to podcasts. That's why I love doing shows and playing live. Well, I, you know, in addition to playing the music, but getting to talk to people about this podcast because my family does not want to talk to me about it anymore. My band does not want to talk to me about it anymore. So I love meeting people at the shows because they will, we can, who else can I talk to about this sort of stuff? You know, there's only so many people that care as passionately about this thing as we do. So. I look forward to hopefully meeting you on the road. All right, that is it. On to today's show. And as I said off the top, the Wonder Twins of punk are here today. They're not twins, but they are definitely wonderful. Stephen and Jeff McDonald from the band Red Cross, from the band The Tater Tots. And, uh, well, Stephen also plays in the Melvins as well. They are, without a doubt, just, there's no other way to describe it. Like, here's a band that was schooled in the very, very inception by Black Flag, then went on to kind of become a key part of the Paisley Underground, then became a key sort of resistance to glam metal, then winds up becoming proto-grunge, then winds up, you know, they're just a band that always has remained awesome. And they're on the show today because one of their 
incredible albums has been reissued by Merge, Neurotica. And this record to me has always held a deep fascination because there was a record store in Toronto called Neurotica and they had a copy of the album up on the wall and it was never for sale, but just the cover. And at this point, to hear music that was out of print, you kind of were screwed. There was no streaming services. And there, I don't think there was a CD reissue. And if there was, it was also probably out of print by that point. So for years, I just would go into Neurotica and stare at this album on the wall and try and reconcile that this band that did this album, Neurotica, is the same band that was playing in the church with Black Flag. And when I finally got to hear that record, after years of speculating about it, it just it just hit me so hard. And they continue to be this band that every couple months I'll just go back and listen to a record and just be struck by the fact that this is arguably the greatest band to kind of emerge from punk rock because they never got stale. And they never got stale. They still are putting out great records to this day. So if you have not heard Red Cross or if you've only heard the punk quote unquote punk period of Red Cross, the early, early period of Red Cross, you got, you got a lot of joy ahead of you because my God, do these records give and give and give. And speaking of giving, Jeff and Steven have come to the show to give you one hell of a conversation. I first met Steven years ago. Actually, I don't think I met him when he was playing with Off. I think I first met him at South by Southwest and he was there to see uh, Jay Riotard play. I think he was producing the Be Your Own Pet record at the time. And I met this guy and it was just, it just, I, could, I couldn't believe it. He was just, you know, rock royalty, punk rock royalty. But unlike a lot of people in music that have achieved some sort of level of status or fame or reputation, Steven has always been one of the sweetest human beings I've, I've met. And so through Steven, I kind of feel I got to know Jeff before ever talking to Jeff. And you'll hear me talk about it on the show in a second. But I had some preconceived notions about what Jeff was going to be like because I knew him just through reputation. Well, obviously the music as well, but just through reputation through his younger brother. And younger brothers have a different experience with people than the general population does. So anyway, no spoilers. You'll hear us talk about that in a second. I guess just go out and pick up this Neurotica record. Listen to it on streaming or, or do whatever you have to do. But this reissue is beautiful. And finally, this record is not just going to exist on the wall of a record store in Toronto with me speculating about it. I can actually take it home and, and play it and listen to it. I got an original eventually. But the reissue is worth picking up because it's got bonus stuff and it's just remastered and all the usual stuff. It's, it looks fantastic. Incredible job. I got to say also thank you to Mike from Merge, who has worked with me tirelessly and put up with my bullshit, not only, you know, booking bands for this podcast, but also because he is the publicist for me in Fucked Up. And now Mike has gone on from Merge and is going on to do different things. But I just want to thank Mike for making this come together and all the other stuff he's done for me and both sides of my life over the years. Thank you, Mike. And that is it. I, I, once again, I apologize for the audio in this room. I think this episode deserves a better intro. Maybe I'll record a better intro when I get home. Maybe you'll just be hearing this one for a little bit. Eh, let me think about that. All right. But until I get home, sit back, relax, and enjoy Stephen and Jeff McDonald on Turned Out a Punk. Steve and Jeff. 
thank you for coming on and back to the show. Oh yeah. Uh, are we, is this also a YouTube thing? Is there going to be a visual of this? Um, no, this is only audio, only audio. People are just going to hear us. Yeah. I was, I was one of your first guests and I listened to it today and it's still the best episode of this podcast. <laughs> I tend to agree. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, you know, it's insane. Well, of course the insane thing is, and I'm sure we told the story that it was the second time we chatted within the same 24 hours or something because it was the classic thing we chat we talked for 90 minutes or whatever then it was like oh dude i didn't push record (laughs) it was even it was even worse than that it was was it it was you and me we finished recording we were so tired because we had just come from an epic jam session that's true and we finished recording this incredible episode and then we said you said let's go smoke a joint and i said okay and we didn't hit save and my computer ran ran out of power i say we like it's your fault i didn't hit save right and the computer ran out of power squiggle s yep and it happened that weirdly also happened in episode 101, which I'd say is the oh. second best episode of this podcast ever, where I had to re-record it the next day with the guys in it. Um, that's a crazy episode with a wrestler MVP and Zach Blair from Rise Against and, and at the time in Guar, uh-huh. and how they kept reconnecting and losing touch with each other throughout their lives. One winding up in prison for robbing a casino boat before becoming a wrestler and Zach Blair being in all these metal bands. <laughs> And then they save the macho, or they, sorry, they save the misfits from being murdered by the macho man Randy Savage in uh, the year 1999, and okay. then lose touch. How, what, what's, well, what, how are they, How is he going to murder the misfits? Yeah, with his bare hands. With his bare hands, he is, from all accounts, a very. He was a very terrifying individual, and right. and uh, and the misfits had deeply offended him. The uh, Doyle and uh, Macho Man's then fiance, gorgeous George von Frankenstein, had ran off together and subsequently got married and, uh, and stuff. Okay, so it worked out for them. It was the real relationship. It worked out, and and ultimately it worked out that you know these guys, Zach Blair and and MVP, the wrestler, were there because they were able to talk uh, the Macho Man out of uh, murdering the Misfits that night. <laughs> But anyway, that it also got a like race. An epic journey. It got a race too. So I feel like the best ones get a race, which is not to say I'm going to race this yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling this one's going to be pretty epic too. And uh, I got to be honest with you, Jeff. Uh, I'm very intimidated by you. I think, and uh, I, I, you know, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that you know I'm I'm a huge fan of all the stuff you've done and all the incarnations of red cross and things and, and the tater tots too i love the tater tots but also because i know you through jeff and jeff has oh sorry i know you through steve and steve has such reverence for you and Aww. and he's and, and i can I'm, i don't mean to speak for you on this steve but he's a little intimidated by you in some ways and i feel i feel that's <laughs> been put onto me a little bit so oh don't be intimidated <laughs> well i gotta start this off with you the way they all start off steve has done this jeff how'd you get into punk from the first time you ever came across the genre 
Um, the first time I came across, I think it was, um, wow, actual punk rock. So like not the, not anything that be, later kind of became punk. Whatever you I said think the Ramones, it is. Okay, the Ramones, the first actual modern day punk band. Um, I was reading, um, my friend and I had a subscription to Circus Magazine, it was like an early version. And, um, and there was a, a really great review uh, on the first album, but but the best thing was some right the some first what the first the next first. issue complaining about what crap the rec the, the writer was at the record the songs were so fast and slow there weren't even any guitar solos in them so that's you know and then shortly after that like I I had my eyes open but I'd, I'd seen pictures of the Ramones I even I think I saw the first album in a record store but I didn't take the plunge till I saw them on. Um, Don Kirshner's rock concert. Mm. So that was like their second album. Yeah. And um, and it was just, it was like the Beatles because I always personally, I love music with really heavy guitars. And even my friends who weren't punk rock, everyone always like wanted records that were fast. Like the judge it on if it was fast. Like, like I guess the Who and Led Zeppelin would be fast and loud kind of music. But, um, you know, we followed Black Sabbath early on and, um, and and I, I always thought of like uh, Ramones to be kind of a combination of the Beatles and Black Sabbath, having like the big, loud, huge guitar power chords, but these like insanely great pop songs. And so we were way we were way early into Sabbath, and we so we got to 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 actually experience them kind of like disintegrate and just become horrible. And then by that time, all the kids at our school discovered them, they were terrible. And we had found the Ramones. They didn't know who the Ramones were yet. So I would be pushing Ramones at school, pushing Ramones. And then the Ramones did a show opening for Black Sabbath at the Long Beach Arena. And they got booed and bottles thrown at them. And it was like, the next day it was like, it was over. It was just completely over. There was no support for for punk rock at all for at least wait so what, what do you I mean it was wait, so what do you mean it was over for you or it was over for punk rock's chance well no because like a lot of the stoner and surfer kids we would have the one thing we would have in um common was music because you know we've been following it for so long buying records for so long i could always um identify with their taste because i like you know led zeppelin and stuff too as well as other stuff that they didn't know about but i always thought oh the ramones were the group that were going to save rock and roll because everything was kind of was dissolving. All the hard rock of the seventies was starting to get really bloated, really terrible. And, um, and it, you know, and it just, for me, I just thought the Ramones would be the band that just start rock and roll over again. Okay. So, so you thought this when you were what, 13, 14 years old? Yeah. Like, I guess the first, the first time I saw the Ramones record, it probably must've been 1976 at the eardrum. I remember yeah in my head you know keeping that picture like this band they look so cool what do they do i mean as you know it was like kiss the, any of the beatles any band that looked like a gang you know like so like such a unit so i had to wait a few months till i actually heard them but it was like everything i'd ever ever wanted so the ramones you know maybe kind of anti-english punk rock in a way because they were just you know, they were the architects, they were the coolest ones. And I always like when, um, you know, like Joey Ramone would talk about, you know, oh, all like the Clash and the Pistols and all those people, you know, they talk about those people being the, the people who started punk rock. And they said, well, you know, they're fine. Those groups were great, but we already had three albums by the time they got together. Mm -hmm. And it's true. 
you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it all, it's just the Ramones. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I mean, chaos, Steve. Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go and ahead. then every, then everything else is, you know, a result of. Well, also, I mean, you said the Ramones were somewhere between, um, uh, Black Sabbath and the Beatles, but also yeah. what about um, the the band that came from the town that we grew up in, the Beach Boys? Well, you know, it's really weird. Because we lived in a very small house and occasionally when we get new records, our parents were pretty cool about us, like in the afternoon blasting them and they occasionally listen to them. And my dad said, you know, he's like, oh, Ramona, this is pretty good. It sounds like Jan and Dean, which was like, you know, that's pretty <laughs> good because they, they kind of did Dean. sound like Jan and Dean. Jan and Dean are actually the more psychedelic version of the Beach Boys, if you would, if you go deep. Yeah, I almost bought the little old lady from Pasadena, um, 12 inch. Those there, records man. are great. They're really yeah. good. The record cover is very psychedelic. You're right. It's uh, them and uh, the little old lady. But he was totally right. And another thing, when you look back at Ramones, like they were kind of like musical auteurs because they created, you know, a world that you had, like I'd never been to New York, but by the first time I went to New York, I had, I knew where I was. Mm. And it was there very much in the same way the Velvet Underground painted the New York, you know, the way New York was. You know, just like you knew their surroundings just through their records. And and an outsider would look at their records and and their, you know, their, their, their lyrics and think it was just like this, uh, uh, you know, comic book stuff. But you know, it was actually code, mm -hmm. you know, for people who were cool. And also, they were like, you know, they'd all been in other bands. Like, I think that's the thing that it, you know, it's it's a lot more, I don't want to say calculated, but like it feels. Well, it's actually a band I wanted to ask you about was the Dogs from Detroit, who eventually moved to LA, but they have that short period in New York where they. Um, you know they they're open for kiss at the show where kiss gets signed and stuff like that and according to legend johnny was at a lot of those shows and was like looking at them and the way they dressed on stage and so it's kind of fascinating to kind of look at johnny and obviously johnny dressed like that himself but right you know like looking at him taking these things from different places and kind of making this thing that's actually like a lot more conceptually brilliant you know than then people give it you know even in punk people are always like oh it's so simple those chords but it's like no that was planned that way well, that is the source of every modern um, rock-based, blues-based music, is the Ramones. They just mm. distilled it. And they were so brilliant. And, and the idea to make, to, you know, I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that they got their idea to be this uh, aesthetically, like, you know, Beatles and, and Kiss. And, you know, they said basically Rollers. Wasn't it, wasn't it Johnny or they, they, they kind of based like their image on the Bay City Rollers. In fact, the Bay City Rollers had this uniform group, group look, I meant. Well, that's Malcolm McLaren. I just watched that uh, terrible, well, uh, maybe not terrible. Maybe you enjoyed it, but that Disney Sex Pistols thing. Yeah. Uh, I can't yet. I am sure it's good. Uh, I will watch it, but there's too many other things. Uh, Damien, did, well, Damien just said he didn't like it. I've seen three oh, so you didn't because most people were, were just dead set against it, and all everyone I know ended up liking it. Uh, there's it's it's fun, you know, like it's it's fun. It's interesting because like Disney did that, they did the Pam and Tommy Lee thing, and they did another yeah. one that I'm forgetting too. And it's interesting to see how Disney presents historical events, you know, and, yeah. and, and repackages them. So are the, right. Historical events of that, of that. It's the sort? Pocahontas syndrome. Yeah, well, yeah, like there's this great, <laughs> there's this great scene uh, or story that I've heard um, even actually, I think it was in the Vandy Fair pro, you know, it's pro the show piece, 
where Chrissy Hine watched it apparently was like, I, I only fucked them once <laughs> talking about Steve <laughs> Jones because yeah. she's like the, like the love interest throughout the whole show. You're right. kidding me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but oh, there, man. But there, there are these little weird things they throw in there, right? Like uh, how he got lung cancer from destroying the the roof of sex and stuff i don't want to spoil it for you oh yeah, i've only but, seen three episodes okay well i'm not going to say anything more but like but one thing they do uh, have in there is malcolm mclaren talking about how he looked at the bay city rollers as being the beatles and he wanted the pistols or his band i think at that point i don't know if you remember sure. this part steve but he says he wants them to be the rolling stones but it, it's interesting how the bay city right. rollers are kind of key to both bands well, think about the time they popped up, but like a year before, like the actual kind of inception of punk rock. And they and they had the, you know, they had the Rod Stewart punk rock hairdo that, you know, they had the fashion thing down. They looked like what would be punk rockers a year later. They yeah. just were like the ultimate, you know, bubblegum pop group. Yeah. Not but good. They were, they, they were... The thing about them is they looked so cool, but they only had like maybe two good songs. Well, yeah, I mean, when you looked at them, they looked like Ziggy Stardust era Bowie yeah. or, 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 or T-Rex, but then the music was really light and lightweight. And I mean, they had a couple fluffy. of songs that were undeniably great and catchy, but I remember like before punk rockers in the neighborhood, well, we were the very first people who had any kind of punk look, but uh, before us, there were girls in our neighborhood that dressed like the rollers and had the whole gear and you know followed them around and they kind of looked like the, the very first punk rockers in our neighborhood were basically roller fans <laughs> would, would those people people that have been going to like rodney's english disco type thing no that? if we lived in the no, valley no, no, maybe the, the people, yeah with the girls if, the girl if we had lived in the Jerminsky, valley was, well they i kind of think there were people that if it wasn't for the Bay City Rollers, it would have been Barry Manilow or the Osmonds. Okay. Like people have this kind of touched in the head kind of fast. It's always, they always love the Osmonds or Barry Manilow in the seventies. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was any cross pollination, like pollination, pollination. Pollination. Of Bay City, of true roller, first gen roller fans and punk rockers. But I do know that a lot of early punk rockers loved like Saturday Night and Yesterday's Heroes and all that stuff. Well, given that you're, you know, into rock and roll so early, like what was your awareness of, you know, this this stuff, proto-punk, I consider it punk, but I guess proto-punk like Zolarax or Imperial Dogs, like there's all these amazing bands kind of popping up just prior to this thing in LA, right. um, you know, and the dogs from Detroit moving there too. Like, were you aware of any of this stuff? Were you hearing rumblings of these things? Only if it was covered at the back pages of Cream or Rock Scene magazine. We didn't really have any access to like kind of, not until Rodney, you know, not until Rodney Bingenheimer's show. More you like, know, like 1978 is when we had access to the underground scene. Yeah, well, in 1978, we had, you know, the flip side and lobotomy and slash and and, and search and destroy and rodney that was our internet essentially yeah but as far as like yeah the zolar x they were just a rumor for so many years i know they later finally released their first album like 25 years after yeah but yeah but who was it someone said that oh the rumor going around the scene in the old days was that i we had seen pictures of zolar x because i think they um someone had posted printed them in like um 
in um, Flipside or one of the magazines. And, and I think Don Bowles from Germs said that John Doe used to be in Zolar X. <laughs> that John Doe was in Zolar X before X. But I no, don't is that think true? that's true. No, it's not. No. No. But that, I thought that for many years. This is these great, <laughs> you know, rumors. Um, <laughs> so, so, so pre-internet, you walked around with that. Yeah, I mean, you know how Don Bowles really way. does know. He Don Bowles knows everything. And for yeah. I, maybe it wasn't him who told me, but someone said, "Oh, you know, John Doe was was in Zolar X." Uh, Don um, Bowles told me that he actually first came to LA in like '74 to hang out with true. the Manson girls with that a discussion from the feeders. With, with Don Bowles, I realized realized one day it's like, oh wow, he's the first friend that we have that is an actual great grandfather. <laughs> not just a grandfather; he's a great grandfather. <laughs> yeah, no, with Frank Discussion, the guy from the feeders who uh, infamously dug up the dead dogs and and brought him on stage at the Gilman, and wow, he uh, very like his band uh, feeders have. There's so many wild stories that I, I will you with them off air after the show but well, you know what a feeder <laughs> is right no what is a feeder <laughs> theater is okay it's a um it's it's a uh fetish but it's for people who like like on the internet there's girls like very 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 chubby girls okay they'll be able to have and then these guys will give them tons of money and buy them gifts just to be able to watch them eat online. Now, it's not the same as being a fan of my 600 pound life or, or people having weight loss journey. Those are fascinating on a completely wholesome level, but no feed, but when it goes into feeder territory. And so, yeah. So, Why well, I, I, you're right, so there's, there's some. <laughs> Sure. So that's what a feeder some, is. It's it's across the room right now, but I would grab their LP to show you. <laughs> but both sides are covered in sandpaper, and so it destroys other records that it touches. Right. That's <laughs> and the insert has a red kind of stain because they took used tampons and folded them uh, into the inserts to make a, a mark for all the inserts. So wow. I think I think a feeding fetish, fetish is right up the alley of this band. Well, yeah. Well, there is a band, a very, very, very obscure one-man band, noise, post-punk band from San Francisco called Carolina Rainbow. Yes. And I just, my friend Rebecca Wilson had just reminded me, I told her this story. When I um, when I first moved to my first apartment, I was pulling my, putting my records together again. And I found this, his record, the Carolina Rainbow record, was in a box like All Things Must Pass, but it had the disc and all this other stuff in it. And I opened it up and it was like a pigeon's feather, bugs flying, just these weird lysy bugs and all this garbage. And then, <laughs> then the record, I just picked it up and threw it in the garbage. Cause I mean, it was like a pigeon's feather. I mean, a pigeon's wing is what I meant to say. <laughs> Went right in the garbage. So I don't know what it sounds like. I mean, that's brilliant packaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think and then have... another one negative trend the punk band from san francisco yes um one of my friends was in that band and he said on um, one of their singles they actually because san francisco was a big meth capital and during punk rock everyone took crystal meth well and crystal they put, meth they, yeah they put um crystal meth on uh, under a piece of tape and put it on the their um of the actual labels of their first like hundred copies of their single. Wait, you mean like a bindle of crystal meth? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. They put like they just put like a little bit and then covered it with tape. 
So you would see this little um, little pile of meth, but it'd be underneath like you know clear tape. So you're telling me that that's some, so San Francisco punk. You have to admit. Well, some kid's probably going to pay a thousand dollars for that <laughs> single, and yeah. then get it pulled by the drug dogs at customs when when they yeah, get to Germany. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but think about. It. I mean, I wonder if that if the methadrine methadrine is still stable because I think about Steven Tyler um, was talking about like going to Japan and. Uh, he was struggling with his opiate addiction, but going to Japan with Aerosmith and going into an, um, an antique store and finding this um, very old um, um, opium pipe, you know, from this like an antique, who knows how old, hundred years old. And he bought it and he smoked what was in it and got him very high. <laughs> so it's like the That's, same thing. Like a hundred year old resins. Yeah, isn't that weird? So, <laughs> so people do have the, the first negative trend single that the self release. Yeah, there might be a bump of crystal meth in there. <laughs> Beam off San the labels. <laughs> yeah, we're talking like late 70s San Francisco. I guess people don't know that because I get the guy who told me that was like he was the one who did it. Yeah. And I'd never heard that as a as a myth. <laughs> no, like, you've you've uh, brought a new collector. Like people are going to be taking the drugs. People are going to be buying these records and trying to take them to drug dogs. Like, hey, can you check if this is a first press for me? <laughs> well, do you know this that... label of the um, Cat Stevens album, Catch Bullet 4? If you lick it, there's a mescaline on the label. Just kidding. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. That speaking, uh, speaking of San Francisco, I, I saw Dee Detroit the other night. Do you know who that is, Dee Detroit? Of no. USA. Oh, oh, from USA, wow. of course, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, because she'd been dis she had disappeared years ago, and every and I was a it was a conversation online, and I was just relieved that I saw her at the store the other day. Didn't talk well, to her, but... and so did you talk to her? No, but I wish I would have. I wish I don't know where she's at. The last time I talked to her, last time I saw her was in um, when we played did Born Innocent at the Greek Theater with Sonic Youth. And, she, and I was in the audience and she was, gave me all this Jesus um, pamphlet. It's just, no, no, I'm very serious. So she had this whole Jesus thing going, but it seemed like a very kind of, you know, post-junkie, uh, post-punk punk Jesus. Um, I don't Drag. know what. It, I don't know. She <laughs> it, said she was, was very phase. serious, but it wasn't your typical born-again stuff. But I no. think she's still into Jesus, so. Well, we played with UXA early on. They were yeah. one of the first bands that we played with at the Hong Kong Cafe. They were good. They were just screechy and noisy and weird. It had a weird history kind of had, and scene, kind of strange. Well, they were from the same Dark. kind of scene as the Mau Maus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I remember. Well, that's one of the, like, man, there's so many things I want to talk to you about there. Like, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the, uh, the, the idea that you guys kind of like, exists in this one scene that now is a, a scene that comes up time and time again as being a scene that ultimately gets very vilified by a lot of people that were around then like the hardcore stuff i'm talking about right. particularly like the beach hardcore stuff right um and then it's almost like you know pre-paisley underground is it to that kind of like more i guess i don't know artier punk stuff that you guys are kind of fitting in with prior to yeah there's a there's a good a good year if not more, that there was like the explosion of the Huntington Beach and then like the post kind of first generation of Red Cross and and um, the Paisley Underground thing. That was just a weird by chance thing that we got involved with them. 
Well, Jeff married. Jeff, well, Jeff kind of married into the Paisley Underground because he was dating. Um, Vic, he didn't marry, but he was dating Vicky Peterson of the Bengals or the Bangs at that point for mm-hmm. a long, for a couple of, for quite a few years. Actually. Well, yeah, and that, it wasn't because our paths would normally cross in music. It was because um, I was DJing for a Bob Forrest after hours um, gig that they played, and that's where I, and I thought they sounded like the. They did turtles really well, and then I became yeah. friends. Then meeting all the people like Peter Case and and all these other people in that scene, and Michael Cor. We, we already knew Michael Corsier though. Yeah, we probably did. Well, I think we might have played shows with some. But these people were like kids. smart record fans, but they weren't from the punk scene. So for us, it was kind of teaching them about the LA punk scene. In fact, we set up. Um, the show was the Red Cross, the Bangs, and Black Flag at the Cafe de Grand. That was my doing. Whoa. Trying to kind of get everything together. It didn't really, I mean, it sounds better than it was. And I imagine that the Bangs were by far the best group that Because I mean, that <laughs> but, was just. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I've seen that flyer um, floats around the internet still. Um, and then I think they were already called the Bangles by then, too. And um, but, that was but, me. Do you, but do you remember, yeah, the flyer? Yeah, it's great. But that was me um, who put that show together. I didn't know that. Um, do you remember the show? No, because that was, you know, <laughs> the drug thing is weird. Well, no. Every time we played at the Cafe de Grand, there was this guy, I imagine he's not with us anymore, but he used to sell these um, downers was- called Placidils. Oh. And I guess they're kind of similar to what like Rohypnol would be. But I, we would always take them before shows at the Cafe de Grand, you would get through about four songs and then the rest was just, you, you're at home. and i I think every single time i i played there we took those things and i never saw them before or since yeah plastidils and they were gel caps they look like um um they they, they look like advil advil pm or something yeah like 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 advil gel caps they had red ones too Right. So yeah, I guess that's an interesting, you know, that talk about cross-pollination. It's like for me, I kind of wanted it to happen because I did have friends that were still kind of like in the punk rock scene or people who were based started in the punk scene, but were moving and discovering more music and kind of expanding on it. And then took and then when I fell into that whole Paisley Underground, those people were all, you know, they all came from a collegiate kind of academia scene. Some of most of them did, the ones that were really crazy about music. So yeah, it was just a weird. Time. You mean like hey, you mean like like you mean like a Dream Syndicate, like Steve Wynn? Yeah, yeah, like Steve Wynn, Long Riders, those people. But um, the um, but yeah, there was that was a weird time. I think the de- when death rock started in LA, like that was like punk rock became death rock, which would later become goth. Mm-hmm. A lot of punk rockers were going very um, goth, even the hardcore people. I mean, even TSOL went kind of goth. Yeah, TSOL went very goth. And 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 it was like kind of like, you know, there was a couple of key people in the LA punk rock scene that all of a sudden started wearing like, you know, like white face and and being very, you know, death rock. We call it death rock because goth didn't really exist. And it wasn't really based on, um, I mean, I guess Susie and the Banshees was maybe one of the bands that kind of first kind of inspired a lot of the original LA people. Yeah. That became, you know, then there was, you know, then um, Christian Death and then the Mau Mouse, all the people that were kind of like the junkie people that got really into, you know, they switched from being like the Stones to having like white makeup and, and um, 
rosaries and you know that kind of thing oh there was was, community fk there were another early pre-god but the the other band the the band that we did super heroines well with 45th grave we played we played with with all of them on on all of their first shows we played with 45th grave several times well, that's we, we, were, we, we were always adjacent to all these different scenes, but the thing was, Damien, we, we, we were never really conformed to any one of them. We were always just kind of allowed to exist um, alongside them without actually conforming to, you know, the, the scene, whatever. Like, we didn't dress, like we would play with 45 Gray, but we didn't, um, we weren't wearing all black. Um or, you know, and then once again, you know, Black Flag or the Paisley Underground, any of those things. I mean, at least actually from the very beginning, because the first shows that we played were with Black Flag and we were always doing our own thing. We weren't kind of like a, a baby version, even though they kind of mentored us. We weren't really like, we weren't a hardcore band. We were more coming from that place that Jeff was talking about earlier, more like the Beatles, I mean, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Ramones, Black Sabbath, and then also, um, you know, watching Kiss. Kiss, and then also watching beach beach movies, sixties beach movies after school. You know, on, they were they were on um, local television after school, and those things inspired us. But hang on, like, can I take over for a second? I want to take yes, over yes. for a second. Please. Do. Well, I want to say I say I think that Jeff's discovery of all of it. I still I want to linger on that more because. I think it's so crazy and fascinating that because like my story is always, I'm always such a unique, you know, novelty oddity that I was, you know, playing with black flag when I was 11 or 12, but um, you know, but, and Jeff is three and a half years older than me. And um, you know, I, you know, he was just the cool, the, the older brother that actually wanted his kid brother to hang out. That was the, that was how I ended up there. Usually kid brothers are, I mean, I don't know about your sons, Damien. I don't know if the if they're, you know, if the oldest wants the, the younger ones to go do all the things with them. I mean, I can imagine, I don't know. Maybe, no. maybe, yeah, right. So the younger two, maybe, but not the older one, the eldest one yeah. is wants nothing to do with them. Like exactly. Yeah. 13 years old. I mean, yes. give me a break. Get yeah, the fuck exactly. away from me. But um Jeff was always, as I'd say nowadays, very inclusive with me. <laughs> and um you know, and, but I'm always so like, I'm mesmerized. Like I think like, oh, okay. So my uncle, our uncle, our youngest uncle is nine years older than Jeff. So he's sort of like an older sibling. Um, it's my dad's youngest brother. And he has rock and roll records that are sort of like more sophisticated than us. And, um, and Christmas, I guess, 1972, he has the first, he has Ziggy Stardust on eight-track tape, and you know I would have just ignored it, but Jeff was like, and you know, totally gravitating to this thing, and and our uncle was like, you know, and so Jeff would have been nine years old. He's born in '63. He's nine, and he's like, what is this? I want, I want to know what this is. And uh, and then Shane was our uncle Shane. It's his name. He's like, oh yeah, you think that's cool? Yeah, you could just take it home. You know, you can borrow it. And then, um, you know, and then we, that's the A track we never gave back to our uncle. The, the funny thing about that A track is <laughs> that A track changed the world of music forever. Yeah. Well, like he, remember, for nobody, nobody knew David Bowie then. That was like, it was, he was like a punk act. So we didn't have any other friends to bond with. 
But the thing about that eight track is my friend, Annette, she, she went to the Catholic school. So after school, we meet up at her house and before her mom got home from work, they had a big console that had the eight track machine and record player and everything. So we would always get, we would always put on the Ziggy Stardust and just listen to it. Just like looped until her mom got home. And then she, she would, she would listen to Charlie Rich behind closed doors. <laughs> and, and we had to sit through that and before she let us play more records. Yeah, the mom yeah, would come was, up yeah. from work and have, uh, she'd come up from work and have some um, Chardonnay and some Rita Coolidge. Well, the weird then, thing about uh, Charlie Charlie Rich behind closed doors is I just recently listened to that album. I was like, I was like, wow, I know these odd songs. Like I knew like the tracks. And it's because you were listening to Charlie Rich, Rich as you were patiently waiting, patiently to put, listening to it, patiently every waiting day, to, every so day. that you could put you could put Ziggy Stardust back on. Like right. eventually, the this record's going to end. I gave her wait, what did she? Um, <laughs> I remember my grandma kind of hit like she um, struck out and gave me um, 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 the Eagles um, Hotel California. I remember you giving that out, to like, my she, friend's she... mom and not even listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> you, mean, you mean for Christmas? She, she She's like, yeah, stab. no, no, not for Christmas. Just so you can have this. Knowing oh, it was like kind of so like her sweet. scene and like we would get more record time if we were, you know, buttering her up. No, it was, like, grand... it was really, like, I guess in a weird sort of way, it's like gathering around the radio in the 1940s. But it was kind of like an after school ritual, eating mm-hmm. salads and listening to david bowie and alice cooper and all that stuff it was like yeah. the the hip kardashians it's poor okay, kardashians okay. eating salads i don't remember the salad part yeah, but, like... but but still okay so okay so let's go back to that so i'm five yeah, years yeah. old you're eight and a half nine you've got ziggy stardust on a track and you're like not Whoa. at eight that was not that not yet probably you're nine years old it's yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it was the beginning of 73. So you're about to turn 10. We got it on Christmas the year it came out. So yeah. it came out in the summer of 72. And we hijacked Shane's copy of it by Christmas of 72. <laughs> so yeah. by the by January 73, Bowie has got um, he has he already has uh, a couple of albums, which you go back and get. And I know that you've got um you went back and got Honky Dory. You brought Honky Dory home yeah. like the next week or whatever. Two ninety nine so now- at months stereo. And so the got Honky Dory. To- <laughs> Can I tell you, just like, just like yeah. the, this is what the, 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 the way it was for a child to buy a record that looked like Honky Dory in 1973. <laughs> it's like this lady looked at me in horror and says, do you know what this is? And I go, yes. <laughs> she looked at me like I was trying to buy porn. <laughs> But she just sold it, she put it in the bag and sold it. And they always get, we always got the looks from like the older brother, sister crowd and that era buying the weird. Yeah, her like, because they're listening to like traffic records and, you know, uh, you know. Whatever. Yeah, I'm sorry I, I, I derailed, but I always have to think about the hunky dory and the woman who now in my mind looks like a really embittered Stevie Nicks. And I love Stevie Nicks. <laughs> And trying Phoenix to like, not... you know, me. I mean, remember but, buying the Runaways but... album? I, this is a weird memory I have, and I'll shut up after this. I no, have a memory no, of any no, record that no. I purchased or any movie I saw or any fantasy live. I remember all their gear. Any movie I can think of, I saw in the theater. I remember what theater I saw it at. And um, so I just remember, you know, like when 
buying records and getting shit, getting like um, the album, the Runaway second album, Queens of Noise at the warehouse in Hawthorne. And this guy's okay. like, hey man, these guys run up, they can't even play their instruments. I was like, Wait, you mean so the guy, like the, the checker, like was com- yeah. like, commenting on every record, and he Wait, went the to make it a, was the worst an in-store store announcement. Yeah, What's yeah, it's the worst, worst record store. But they did have one tiny bin that was called Imports, and that's where that's where you check it every week because there would occasionally be like a punk. That's where I got like the um, the uh, adverts for stuff. You get shit like that, like weird records you wouldn't get anywhere else. But the Runaways, um, Queens of Noise, yeah, was there, and. Um, yeah, he just just tried to school me on how they don't know how to play their instruments. It's like, okay, <laughs> right, whatever, shut right. the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you just jumped ahead three years. I'm still in I'm 1973. Sorry. I'm, sorry. Okay, I'm in 1973. Well, because I just, you know, I think about this, I guess. I maybe I've got too much time on my hands. But, um, you know, in 1973, the beginning of 1973, you've got, we've just discovered Ziggy Stardust. Uh, we've already been fueling on Alice Cooper. And be, Elton John. Elton John and Alice Cooper have already been a steady part of our diet. Cat Stevens, too. Cat Stevens, yeah, there's one Beatles and Stones, obviously. But, then but Zoe, I always think it was Elton, Cat Stevens, and the David Bowie, and like Alice Cooper, and the Rolling Stones. But I feel like, uh, but I feel like David Bowie really kind of ignited something. Like, like those things were already in the pot, and then when that yeah. special, that special ingredients, this Ziggy Stardust thing entered the pot, then it was like the stew totally changed and the stakes, right. the stakes raised, you know, exponentially immediately. And, and then you got, we went back and got hunky dory Annette got um, space oddity. And then by whatever it was. Yeah. yeah well, no, Aladdin Sane comes out sometime yeah. that summer. So then suddenly we've got Aladdin Sane and we get pinned up. Suddenly he's like, he's just like firing them out. And I just, that was a crazy time. And that's, so 70, that's 1973, I born 67. I'm six years old. I'm six years old. <laughs> My brain is being like the neuropaths, the, the, the neuroplasticity or whatever they talk about on other podcasts. I just think about what was going on in my uh, neural pathways. Uh, but, you know, but I also think that I, I wasn't really making these choices for the most part. I mean, you were the one that we're curating this experience. That's a good way of putting it. And um, so I always think that that is fascinating how um, you gravitated to these things. Like why, what, what, what you weren't, like the girl at the store uh, that looked like you now see her as the embittered Stevie Nicks. Um, that didn't have an influence on you. You didn't think you didn't feel shameful at that moment, no. or because I would think that you would think that she was cool. She she's a, this older person that works at a record shop. You know, it's like a it's like a cool librarian. Think about it though, like all those groups that you named, like David Bowie, Elton John, Alice Cooper, Rolling Stones, and you know, uh, Martha Hoople, Cat, Cat Stevens, and Martha Hoople. All, those were all the, the the groups that the first generation of like LA punk rockers were listening to as well. They were the other freaks that were listening to. It. No one else was. I mean, people look back in time and think, oh yeah, David Bowie. Now he, you know, they have tennis shoes and everything. But yeah, no, he was just like the older brothers and sisters 
would give us give me shit for our records because my I have friends that have brothers that were into cream and into all that all that kind of you know, traffic and stuff and they'd see Lou Reed records and Mata Hoople and call them fag records or just just completely be baffled or angry by them mm-hmm. so that was like you know so that basically was the pre-punk you know those those if, few I, artists I, I those commercial it, I think artists. It, I think of like the, you know, like Annette and Linda, Annette Sesser's older sister, Joni Sesser, like maybe a, <laughs> a senior in high school in that moment. I always think if they listen to music like Pablo Cruz. No. So with her, the, the older <laughs> sister in the situation is like my friend's older sister looked like Catherine Ross from The Graduate. She was very hip, had go go boots, <laughs> but she had a record collection that we were not allowed to touch. We we're allowed to go in her room and we're allowed to, and I just know that we've got through thumbing through some of them. We didn't dare play them. It was like, she had Led Zeppelin one and three traffic records. We always throw in traffic and she, you know, she'd always bash our music and say how great traffic was and, and yes, album. So, and that's what anyone who was 10 years older than our seven years older than me was into that shit. So, okay. I tried, so now- but I, I couldn't get into it. You remember, so, like the tip. You tried. You tried. So okay, right. Okay, great. So as a thirteen-year-old, Tales of Tropic. Was it Tales of Tropic Ocean? Is that the Yes album, the double record set that my yeah, uncle yeah. Shane loaned it to me once? It had a really great album cover. I pulled out disc one and was like looking at it, and there was no spaces. It was like, oh my god, this is the same song. And then you realize <laughs> that the whole four sides are the same song, and it's really boring. But the first two minutes are really cool because it, you know, kind of swims around your head. And then after about a minute, 30 seconds, they're like, no, I can't get through this. Wanting to, but just you can't do it. Possible. Okay, so, so you tried. I tried. I, but now I can't. I, now I appreciate some of that stuff. But, you know, I mean, it's like people that we went to school with that liked Black Sabbath. We, I knew, like, I always looked at them lyrically as like kind of like an Italian horror film. Like, you know, kind of funny, cool, kitschy. We knew people that, you know, were seriously followed lyrics in groups by Black Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Mm. Like fairy, you know, fairy stuff and like wait, weird uh, devil stuff. Wait, so you're saying that your average American teenager took the Led Zeppelin lyrics very seriously? The ones we knew. So like they, they listened they, to them like they were anything but, you know, comic book type stuff, lyrics. So they were, they were thinking about bustles and hedgerows? Yeah, we're thinking about Black Sabbath, thinking it's like really dark. It's really like, more like, like comic on their, books and fun. On their now. way, on their way to Dewiner Schnitzel to get you know a corn dog and a, and but there was a chocolate kids, shake. The kids that we knew that listened to Led Zeppelin <laughs> and all those groups when we were in, in our early teens, they were smoking pot way too early. Because one of my friends who eventually started selling pot at like sixth grade, remember Fort that kid? Sure. That kid, so he, this was a kid I've known since kindergarten. All of a sudden, he's the only child and his parents are older. And all of a sudden, he has this whole setup and really, really quality pot. And um, so then we all started smoking pot at like 12, 13 and shit like that. It was, I don't think people should smoke it that young. The whole frontal yeah, lobe thing. No, I don't maybe think we should either. But that's when we most, most of us started. At least most of us that yeah. went up in music, it seems. Yeah. Well, how old were you when you started smoking weed, Steve? I forgot, 11? Me, no, you were young. Like, let's not talk about me. I'd like to, I'd like Alfie maybe to be able to listen to some of this, but uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, maybe not, whatever. But uh, no, I'm still fascinated just about how you got into uh, this music. How, Pre-pop. It's like, you know, because like when I think about, you know, Joni Sesser, the Catherine Ross of our neighborhood <laughs> and, um, 
And she, I would think that this, she would have like some influence in the sphere of your world. Yet you're completely like our, our Uncle Shane and, and Yes Records. And you saw that, you know, you preferred records with lots of small bands in the grooves. Yes. That meant, that meant like a two and a half minute song. That was like yeah. Meet the Beatles. Meet the yeah, Beatles yeah. was still appealing to you. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh you know, and, and you were looking for that connection. And I think that's interesting that you were, because I mean, it's almost like you were like a nine years old Lester Bangs or something. Well, think about how, like, if you were to put on FM radio in like 1973, how absolutely horrible. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be Led Zeppelin and The Who. It would just be this just heinous middle of the road garbage rock that, that has died, time has killed. <laughs> and you know, and it's all there was. So any tidbit of anything that was interesting was like, you know, it was, it was a no-brainer. It, you know, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, it was just okay. Uh, okay, so, okay. So I'm still interested in how you turned out a punk. Okay, so 73, we've got 73, it all kind of starts in my mind. That's when the rock. special the special ingredient was added to the pot. And then dolls. Yeah, and then 74, you bring on the second New York Dolls record. Imperial Dolls um, play their show in 74 in in um LA. The one their one big show they play and and actually Spaces Hall. Yeah, they play that Spaces that is that the one that's like a university show? Oh no, I cuz I just saw a flyer for them from an old shot. I thought it was like somewhere off of Vermont Hollywood Boulevard. Well, I know the, I could be wrong. Tell about the New York Dolls? No, no. Imperial the dogs, dogs from Detroit. Uh, uh, no, no, sorry. Uh, this is this is the Imperial Dogs, the band that did "This Ain't the Summer of Love." Oh, and... I, I don't, I don't know that. I, I always thought they were the same band. No, the Imperial Dogs was like, uh, I guess, shortly before the Detroit Dogs arrived. The Imperial Dogs, they played a few shows, including a show at Rodney's English Disco. Uh. And <laughs> when Jane Wheatland was on, she's like, they never had shows there. And I'm like, no, no, that uh, really exists. And she's like, no, they never had shows there, but it did exist. There is a show that they played I'm, there. Well, Sean yeah, Iggy Cassidy, played there. Sean Cassidy and Iggy played there. Yeah, there's pictures of Sean Cassidy performing, <laughs> but Sean Cassidy's performance looked like he was maybe just either had a live microphone or a lip syncing to it. No, no, it was Longfellow, his band. Yeah, like, he looked because the Stooges, amazing. the Stooges, the really <laughs> the the later really gnarlyed out Stooges played at Rodney's show. That's the one where. Uh, it's a show where um, Ron Ashton is wearing a full Nazi SS uniform, beating beating Iggy with a whip on stage. It's a famous show, but it happened oh. at Rodney's. And there's like that right. photo, right, where he like where he's got him in the chokehold and he's wearing the uniform. He's got the whip. Yeah, the that's hand. from that. So like you know, she might have missed it, but I think you know, occasionally there was show. But from pictures I've seen, I never went back to the Rodney. Um, uh, what was it? The um, they the installation they they read they put that his club back together in Hollywood Boulevard for like several months it was oh, wow. there uh, an exact replica but yeah like I mean, it was tiny tiny yeah I mean yeah it's amazing what about, the, what about the seeds like was that on your radar because like obviously you guys worked oh, with Sky Saxon later on but like that was that was a little late. That was after we were just illusioned by hardcore. Then we started just going to uh, buying records at. Um, at thrift shops. Well, it was, that shops. was another older brother thing. It was like all the people had, had their precious record collections that just kind of like gave up giving the thrift stores. So mm -hmm. we would find groups like Love and The Seeds and it would be like, oh, this looks amazing. And I, I knew The Seeds because everyone knew 
pushing too hard because I was on K-Earth and stuff. But the record the covers was incredible. And yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, this is punk rock. Okay, this is this is from the same, you know, cesspool essentially. Yes. <laughs> well, and, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's true. And I mean, LA, but LA in the early 80s, the, the thrift shops were true gold mines for, for 60s garage rock records. Battered like, records, but they were great records you would listen to, but they were trashed. I mean, they weren't collectible. Mm. Well, now you guys kind of invent that thrifting thing, you know, or like are really the people that kind of popularize it and, and turn it into a style, I think. Oh, well, you we used the, to, the look? We, the look, we, we, yeah. we used to dive into the, um, to the, uh, what, what's the, the chair, Goodwill box. Like they have the big Goodwill bins. Yeah. And they have them in the, the big bins in the supermarket parking lot. We went out they look like gigs. giant. Um, giant um, mail mail yeah, boxes. I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, do, I dove in a few times after gigs, and you know, got got my first pair of elephant flare bell bottoms. But and you know, then you got a dashiki. I remember my blue dashiki, which can be seen at live at um, um, Cafe de Grand show <laughs> yeah, um, when yeah. you dumpster die. But you know what the weird thing about that is? Um, you know the guy who played Superman. You know, like in Los Angeles, we have like street where all these people come out and dressed as like you know characters and they hassle um tourists to take pictures with them and they're uh, Holly, kind of Holly boulevard Holly boulevard but, yeah the, they have them in new york they have them you know there's always a johnny depp guy the guy who played um who was the first superman guy in los angeles he has a, a movie about him he died by getting stuck in one of those those whoa he was, he was stuck in one of those um that will um, drop donation off. bins. Yeah, got halfway yeah. in and got stuck and died. Oh my uh, god! So that so I was so that, <laughs> that I just could have been me that because you could have you know the, yeah. the stupid lengths that, in which we go for fashion. That that could have been me. I could have died for those elephant flares. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, now that we're now we're talking about heavy stuff. I wanted to talk about because I find it fascinating the the chilling effect Manson kind of had on youth culture in all over America, uh, mm -hmm. but I think particularly in Southern California. And it really feels like punk is almost like the first rebirth of youth culture after, you know, every, everything kind of gets clamped down upon and, and, you know, you have the end of the sort of the, the LA of the time. Um, I was just wondering, like, you know, you guys are very young at this point, if you, what your memories were of that, or if you think that had any sort of, lasting impact not maybe jeff was or... jeff was old enough to remember this murders going down and you know, not when they happened i didn't i didn't know anything about the manson thing until uh, the book helter skelter came out and then that was just such a bestseller everyone had it in their house and i remember stumbling through it and it was fascinating and horrifying at the same time but but in but like 1969 no i, I you were six where. years old i mean i, I know i didn't know about it i didn't know about the health skeleton. They, they, they managed to keep that that information from you Wait, this the is you want to hear the really insane thing my wife she is an original first generation la punk rocker and she on uh, she's she's a few years older than me so like so we found out that where she the night of Manson's murder, the, Man the second Manson murders, she was at um, the, um, what's it, the Anaheim uh, uh, Convention Center. Center seeing Jethro Tull and um, Led Zeppelin. Whoa, that was, that like, was that night. Yeah, that night. And she, she, lived in was... the, and she lived in the same neighborhood. She went with her brother and they lived here in, in Los Feliz. 
that's where the second murders took place. But anyway, I digress. But, but also like um, co- weird coincidence, isn't that like right around your birthday too? Yeah, like August 10th. But well, that would have been, yeah, that's. Like I didn't. I, I just not until the book. I didn't see. But we. But the thing is, we we kind of put the whole Manson. We wove the Manson thing into our story because we were really influenced by John Waters' Pink Flamingos. Because mm-hmm. Pink Flamingos became like the other punk show played every Friday or Saturday night at a midnight at the New Art, and um, so much of the stuff that we were discovering was already there in the early John Waters film. So that became, everyone we knew, we used to just, if there was no show, we'd just go to see Pink Flamingos. And it was just like completely prying our brains. And that was, and the next thing you know, we start like getting into this whole man. Well, what do you mean by frying? You mean like it's inspiring you? It was, it was opening yeah, up. Yeah, it was. New, so I mean, new, it was new um, pathways. I think we were the first band to be Charles Manson y, like to kind of like, and we were just kind of doing it for shock value, uh, um, but it was for fun. And then, uh, then, then Henry Rollins got into the whole Manson thing after us. <laughs> and so then uh, too, after right? Henry the Rollins, there was, and who? Oh, Sonic Youth and that Petty Bone. Yeah, Sonic Youth, Petty Bone, mm-hmm. and then uh, Axel Rose. Was, yeah. That was it. And then, then there was no more Manson fascination. My mom uh, forbid me from buying the Spaghetti Incident because of that song. I was, I was a no-go in my house. Wow, wow. Yes, our parents used to get so pissed. Why do you say that stuff? Oh, I was like, oh, we just love it. We think it's great. Charles Manson is a genius. We just used to say, we just try to drive our parents insane because they would hear that we we recorded the Charles Manson song or we would say that we were influenced by, you know, the Manson family. But we really, it was very, very much in line with John Waters, which again, was another touchstone for a lot of music. A lot of people were kind of coming from that same area as well. But also the thing is we had a, um, we were really in, we were very like the marketing kids. We were always into pandering to Rodney Bingenheimer from the, yeah. the, for the very beginning. Like I, our very first record, you know, we were recorded in 1979 and you know, the songs are like designed, they're like Rodney Bingenheimer. The only thing that could have been better is if Brooke Shields was in our band itself. <laughs> because we wanted to get played on Rodney. So we kind of, I guess it was our, that was our way of being like the punk rock Bon Jovi. We were writing hit songs, but just for one source. <laughs> <laughs> bon Jovi, well, I, that was a. No, I'm just saying it's like it, like groups like groups now that just like li- exist to write hit songs. We were just we existed just to kind of have hit songs on K Rock, the yeah, Rocky we Show. Yeah, well, we were thinking. Yeah, we were like sort of it was our own sort of you know a Malcolm McLaren moment. You know, yeah. we were uh, Kim Fowley, very, very Kim Fowley influenced, and um, and so. So first off, we have our, you know, our first Rodney hit is about Annette Funicello, which is something that Rodney was made, you know, um, very clear to us was uh, made very clear to his audience was, you know, an important part of, uh, you know, it was right there alongside of punk rock and, and, you know, the birth of rock and roll were things like Annette Funicello. And then, uh, and then, would, and then we would know that Rodney, you know, had Manson ties, and and there was always like what was the and Manson then there was Beach Boys, Rodney. Rodney, you know, Beach Boys, Rodney, yeah, Dennis Wilson, and then like you know, Kim Fowley, Spawn Ranch, Squeaky From, it all kind of, and somehow they all played together, and um, 
And then when we see John Waters, you know, kind of making some of these connections for us. And, you know, I don't know, it just made sense. Next thing we knew, we had, I don't know, that's around the same time that Lie started getting bootlegged. I guess it was being passed or distributed on cassettes. People had uh, found a copy of the Charles Manson album. Well, I think and, it ceased uh, to exist. We, we actually learned it, learned it off. Rodney would play Cease to Resist by the Beach Boys and Cease to Exist back to back. I put it back to back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I take the show, so that's why we knew all those songs. But we did like, but but as a, you know. It's all LA song, history. That, that it has song something to do with great. It's all LA history too. I mean, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's very much taking what we can take from our surroundings. Because yeah, yeah. And LA was just, it's most of the stuff that people don't, aren't interested in. Or really kind of fun to play with. Rodney was like celebrating this, this particular part of history of the of our city's history and i don't know i mean i think we just felt this connection with it and well, we well ronnie ronnie taught us that you know ronnie specter and you know it's no different than joey ramon you know phil specter is punk rock all this stuff all was all connected and really helped because it, for me, it opened the whole world up to like, you know, when, when we were starting to learn how to create and make music, there was just no, you can, you can just put anything together. You can use, you use any kind of influence. And I think that not everyone would have that. And a lot of people who start bands, they don't have like a, like a Rodney Bingenheimer giving them this lesson of like why this connects to that, connects to this, connects to that. They just, you know, are only into what they're into at the time. So, and, and, and I'm sorry, I'm no, going to say really quickly that, I mean, I don't think that Rodney was necessarily like, it wasn't pedantic or whatever. Like it, I don't think he necessarily felt like he was giving everybody a lesson. It was just, that's what he no. was into. No, yeah, he was just show, like turning us on to stuff and it all connected, you know, it all made sense. <clears throat> and, you know, the, so as a musician or certainly somebody is trying to be a creative artist, it's kind of great. It opens up a whole world because basically all you can do is kind of piece together what inspires you and um and to have like a, a larger palette it's great and i i i guess you like someone like that would be like the benefit of having like a super great gifted professor in whatever field it is your study that's kind of what it felt like because i mean if that hadn't existed we would have been left on our own to kind of figure out you know what was good what is cool and what we can use and what we can become well, I think also like well, like you're saying, information was so hard to come by at that point. So yeah. these people that were these sources of information, you kind of wind up putting them on a pedestal because yeah, they, who had firsthand experience with mm -hmm. all this weird shit that was that we were yeah, we had to wait till little things came out of books that we, we could find or interesting TV shows or records. Yeah, and it, yeah, it wasn't like it's not like an old man like but yeah, with the internet now you you know everyone has them at their fingertips, but you had to go hunting for that for the information then it was fun but you know we were fortunate enough to live in next in los angeles adjacent i think because you know we wouldn't have been able to find cool magazines and <laughs> you know well i find it like that's i have the benefit now uh, you know and I, I grew up in a time where this wasn't the case but now uh, well you know i can just like type up the imperial dogs mm -hmm. and watch their show and I can put all the pieces together because I can see them because they're they're just all at my fingertips now. And it right. was so different where you're kind of like, 
you know, like it, it, I think it ultimately crushes imagination because like you guys did, you kind of construct your own universe. Right. You don't have all the pieces of information at your fingertips and, and you end up making something ultimately more creative and ultimately more, I don't, I don't know, interesting when you can't, you know, when you're just trying to like string it all together and figure right. it out early on. No, or who knows? I mean, I don't know if one's better than the other, but I do know there, yeah. There, it's, it's just a different, the, yeah, it's a different experience different now. Time, it's not yeah. one that's better than the other. You just, yeah. you still have to, like you said, curate your own world when you're looking for entertainment I mean, things, and inspiration things might have felt more meaningful because we had to work so hard to get it yeah but yeah but i'm definitely not one of these people like oh it was so much better in those days <laughs> i'm just you know it's just it was a different experience well yeah well you're still a big curator and discoverer of things I, I, you yeah know, that, was fun. that curious. was fun but you get a lot but you're of still like that but you but you kind of yeah. find other things to like uh like I really, I'm a fan of your um, current um, mashups that you're doing on Instagram. Oh yeah, well wait till you see that. Um, I'm working. I'm currently working <laughs> on the reels, Instagram reels. Um, I'm currently working on a really good um, Shirley Jones one. It's going to be like 30 <laughs> seconds long, but believe me, you'll love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that kind of stuff. I think we waste our creativity doing too much of that shit, though. Because then then when it comes time to writing songs or doing videos and stuff, it's just like, spent, you know? (laughs) But so, Jeff, I I still, I'm sorry. I'm still trying to figure, put all the pieces together and figure out my youth and what happened to me. And so, (laughs) and so I think it's fun to kind of go, okay, so. I'm still in 1974. And then like 1976, I go to my first rock concert. It's a KISS concert. We go to a KISS concert in February of 1976. And KISS is still touring their first live album, their first live album. It's your like third or fourth rock concert at this point. You've already seen Elton John and, and Rod Stewart. Uh, so 1976, the runaways come out with their first album that year too. And, um, the Runaways are in Circus Magazine, um, but they're not playing arenas. They're playing like the Whiskey a Go Go, right? You know, like what's it? That must be weird to like suddenly make this connection. Like, whoa! So what? these bands are in in the same periodical where all these other bands are playing at the local sports arena, but these people are in a 300 seat nightclub. What is Well, that? that's what we first learned about them. Like when the Runaways came out, they got a lot of press in like Circus Magazine. So they'd show them playing at, oh, the Starwood. And then, then at the LA Times, you'd look at the, and then you'd see the bands that were playing at the Starwood. It was the first access to any kind of um, nightclub, any kind of the possible, any possibility of seeing a band up close. And so- and was your image a nightclub at that point? Like I would imagine would have been, you would just would imagine that a nightclub was sort of like where the Partridge family played during yeah. the music segments of that TV show. Like, yeah, because there was be, no way of looking at YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, oh, it's this weird sort of Wallace room with like weird lighting and people are maybe eating a steak dinner. And No, 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 because we had no, experienced, I had experienced things like, um, remember the smokestack, which became, the Fleetwood and all the cover bands like Rage would play them. It was like South Bay had those kind of nightclubs, but but finding, re, hearing about the history of Starwood and the, um, Whiskey was just, that was really exciting because looking at their ads, you would see bands that like 
that you, you know, that you read about magazines and they're playing at this place and it's not a giant, you know, arena. And so those were too young to go. And those listings would be right alongside the listing of the big, of the big bands playing at the sports arena. And then there'd be like little columns. People people on Instagram like have, you know, um, have put out like old uh, Starwood ads and they're amazing. It's like, be like yesterday and today, Dubrow, you know, the dogs like the dogs in the eyes and this yeah. jam and um and then some few of the popular cover bands at the time maybe even van halen yeah. Yeah, you know right. it would be like there would be something like that at the whiskey and the starwood like, every week in the in la times it would be great i was gonna ask yeah. you about van halen because like they're kind of happening around the same time they played with the ramones and, and right. the dogs and stuff so were they anything you guys were into early on or is that at all an influence on no, but I, you know, it's weird. I think I told you this, Steve. I, I think we saw Mammoth play at a, at a backyard party. I, I don't know who Mammoth but, is. Uh, Mammoth is pre Van Halen. It's Van, uh, it's, it's David Lee Roth and um, it's all of them, but a different bass player. And um, so that was at the time. Do you remember when those bands like Seagull and those groups were playing? Yeah. yeah. This friend of ours, well, this kid, he had a backyard stoner kegger party and he, and his mom let him let him um hire a band and i was there when they were setting up and it it totally freaked me out because because then i was watching this this van halen um documentary and they were showing pictures of of um of mammoth and the bass player was playing a um dan armstrong bass it was the very first time i'd ever seen one of those was when the band in the backyard was playing so i'm clearly yeah so I'm pretty sure based on my um, photo, my photographic um, memory of instruments that, that that Mammoth played on our street, two doors down. They got, Whoa. but the cops came and dropped a tear gas on them and it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's less than an hour's drive from Pasadena to Hawthorne. No, I know. And, and they used to play sense. every week. They were famous for being really big backyard band and they played intentionally super loud and almost all their shows were busted by the cops and helicopters and stuff. <laughs> so, so like, the rest of the, the rest of the script fits but that was on our block right yeah that was like yeah i remember down. i remember some drunk that's funny and just now for the first time having this image of this wasted chick like wasted teenager i'm you know seven years old wasted teenager and there was tear gas and we're like hiding in our house and yeah. she just like walks through it like this like because yeah. <laughs> we could feel it like oh my god it's tear gas and like, see some girl walking through like <laughs> <laughs> she like barely barely so reacts I'm 99 sure that was van halen for all the stuff i read about them in that period you know what i also think about remember when jimmy jimmy osman and i mean jimmy oliver our next door neighbor <laughs> jimmy oliver who yeah. kind of looked like jimmy osman um Somehow we ended up with a box of um, uh, weird bootlegs. Yeah, we had, and then we had, yeah, we had like a, we had, um, but with those Jimmy Oliver's or where did we get? Yeah, that? his dad, his dad, my friend's dad, for some reason had a box of the classic bootlegs. You know, that had like their records, white, plain white, with like flyer in yeah, them. Stuck on and them. like <laughs> what turned up be Kiss, Fried Alive at. Um, was was there, that was one of them? I had like three copies of the Runaways live at the um, Starwood, the Flaming Groovies at the Roxy, all this stuff. And yeah, and I that's how I bought tickets to see the very first um, 
I'm pill show. I, at Rhino Records, they'd give me money for them. They'd bring them in, and that's how I bought the. That's how I bought the tickets. <laughs> but and we have those. We have those bootlegs like in 1977, right? Like that was. Yeah, the I days. sold. I think I sold all of them, unfortunately. Oh, uh, and they're worth and some a of them are very now. valuable. There was also like shitty ones, like the like the. Um, Beach Boys at Dodger Stadium, and it was just horrible sound, like really, really bad sounding. The Runaways one is good. I've since found it online. Oh, yeah, that's wild. That's crazy. Think about that. And then, so then you became, you started becoming obsessed with going to a nightclub gig. Yeah, because I, I thought you had to be like eighteen, but but the whiskey and Roxy said no age limit, so it was like that was like us trying. You were in on this, trying to hound our parents into letting us go. I was horrified. I was afraid to go to a rock. <laughs> I, would, I, I thought the punk rockers would like immediately see us and know that we were not authentic and that we were posers and that they would, you know, you know, throw us to the ground and shave our head. You know, we like dye. We put a green food coloring in yeah, our Those hair. people didn't exist yet, though. We're just <laughs> yeah. Hollywood weirdos in LA. Like first, like first shows we went to in LA were just, you know, pre, those saw, pre yeah. hardcore and everyone was just like, there was just a small group of freaks. We saw X open for the Avengers at the Whiskey in July mm-hmm. of 1978. Did you remember uh, who wandered in the Whiskey and how insane it was? Joan yeah. Jett. We found out she lived across <laughs> the street and, and Joan Jett was there. She was always there. Oh my God, there's Joan Jett. Like the first time seeing like, like up close someone that we had been a huge fan of for many years. Yeah. Right. And, and so the right. whole, the, yeah, the whole thing is, yeah, she lives in that green apartment building across the street. <laughs> yeah. The one that our parents are parked right in front of. And she was like always, every first whiskey show, she was always there and she was always wasted. Yeah, she was no, really was wasted. We had our friends say, oh, could you get her autograph on, on my Letterman jacket? It wasn't, I didn't earn it. I bought it at the store, but just what? You want me to autograph your jacket? <laughs> <laughs> it was like did confused, she, holding a pen. Did she autograph your jacket? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> but yeah, so that, but that was like seeing Joan Jett, like just as like, as a, that would be like, you know, running into George Clooney or something on the street to us. It was I like a gigantic It's like Jesus stepping out of a spaceship. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, oh, this is a cult star. It was like a major. No, a major star. Yeah, it was a, a really important part of shaping our identity. But um, right. And also yeah. punk rock, there wasn't a, in the first generation of punk rock, there wasn't a single band that wasn't basically there because the Runaways were there first. You know, it's like, I think most of them, most all those groups saw like Runaways that oh I can do that, and then you know like I know that's the case with Pet Smear and the Germs. Every other band that was cool were influenced by the Runaways because mm-hmm. they were there think, a year before. Okay, what? Okay, so what do you think about people like the X Scene and John Doe, like and they're more sophisticated in their poetry classes? Oh, but I'm sure. But I Runaways, wonder what they would have thought. No, I'm. I, we can ask them. We can ask John Doe. But I mean, I I imagine all those bands were seeing like, oh, these like sixteen year olds are playing because at the time there wasn't a you know there wasn't places for bands who weren't signed and played their own music. That was like it was really hard right. to get gigs even at those clubs. You know, unless you had right. some kind of in and like they were signed to a major label. They had been playing in those clubs for you know a couple of years before the LA band started kind of germinating well them and the 
but quick, you know, and, you know, other bands like that, but yeah. So I think the Runaways were a very, very big influence on all of the original LA scene. Yeah, right. I think, I mean, do do they get that credit? Is that, is that something? I don't think they ever get the correct credit because people just say, oh, they were put together, you know, by Singali. It's like, it doesn't matter how a band is put together. It's bullshit. It's like, you know, it's like the, the monkeys were cast as a, as a TV group, but they eventually turned into like a really an amazing band and playing some of the best pop music that was being written by the best writers at the time, you know? So the Runaways get the kind of, you know, they were getting a lot of shit for being girls too. I, I think it's kind of changed more in more recent times I've found. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh no, it's totally changed. Yeah. But I, that was another thing about punk rock that was really. Wait, no, hang on. Wait, is Damien saying that the, the credit has changed? Like in recent oh. times, in recent times they're getting more credit. They more, yeah. they're getting a lot more credit these days. Like you know, I think post yeah. the movie, right? And I think yeah. there's this whole generation of kids now that you know Joan Jett's like one of the one of the guitar gods up there on the sort of the pantheon for for like a whole wave of kids, like you're saying, because they were a band that gave kids permission to try it. Like I think yeah. Valentine said when she saw them, it was kind of like, Oh shit. Well, anyone, I can do this. Like, I think that was, well, see, that's the same thing that was, she would have seen them around the time, you know, we were watching them, mm-hmm. but you know, like Joan Jett, even she was kind of weird about the runaways history when she was big, her first wave of huge fame. She didn't really talk about the runaways that much. And then all of a sudden it just, people started giving them the love and were interested in their history. And eventually she embraced them, but yeah, they, they really were like, you know, as far as punk rock is concerned, they're another band that had to really eat shit, you know, for others to come after them. But like when you listen to that first Runaways album, it's like 1976. It came out the same year as Kiss Alive, essentially within the same 12 months. And And um, it worked for us. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not only were they like 16, 17 year old females, which was um, really un, uncommon, um, they were totally competing with that big arena rock sound of Kiss. And, and they were, but they were also bridging that gap. They were evolving, they were kind of stripping it down too. They were evolving and tearing it back at the same time. Like they were, they were, uh, you know, as where Kiss had, had, you know, they had all the, you know, they had the arena approved, you know, long guitar solos and everything. And this big sound that fills a whole, you know, fills a, an arena. I feel like that first Runaways album kind of has that same big sound that would fill an arena, except for they were starting to like dismantle it. And and then eventually, yeah, the that's the same year that the Ramones put out their first album. And that's the year that, it, the whole thing just started to like turn into this other thing and that they well, were so key in that. Well, to think about it, like- They bridged I mean, the gap those, for us. They bridged yeah. the gap for us. And those they were definitely the missing here. links for us. Those groups are still here today, but at the time, like Runaways, Ramones, that kind of just pre-punk rock. It seemed to me at the time, it seemed like, oh, this is the next big thing. This is the next thing that everyone's going to love. And it didn't happen that way. It had to happen in a much more backwards, you know, way. So you might, it, you it was designed that, to work and it worked for the people that were open to it. Wait, so know? as an, as a, um, so as a 13 year old, you would listen to stuff and you go, this is the next big thing. Like, yeah, I think like, this is what the kids are going to love. That so you, moments, you, I really honestly felt that. 
say so you're listening like 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 a little you know um kim fally or whatever i wasn't being a snob i couldn't wait no the next not day, a like... snob but you, <laughs> But you feel like, like I'm ahead of the curve. I know what's going to be happening yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I'm, I, you know, what I forget what that that not that name is, but that's. But the thing, but think about it. There was always the fear, though. If you like something soon, when everyone else likes it, this also kids are tend to hate it. Then, then you know, turn on the stuff they liked because other right. people like it. So, but then often, knows? yeah, whatever. But it's often that'd be the moment when they would also stop making good records, like Black yeah. Sabbath or something. And then, then people would like them. The people that have no taste and it's never the coolest version <laughs> of the thing that gets popular no. it's always like the next dumbed down iteration right. of it that, right. that winds up being the thing that everyone latches on to that was the black sabbath that was it that's what i saw in black sabbath i just being one of the coolest bands to like they just eventually just becoming just ridiculous and then people discovered them on a large much more larger scale well, I've recently discovered some of the tracks on Never Say Die, which I thought were actually pretty good. But uh, yeah, I was thinking that they probably are. Right? But I just remember that that song being a kind of a hit song was like on the radio and just yeah. hated. You hated that song. Yeah. Well, technical. Yeah, I, was... I, re I remember technical ecstasy was so confusing to us when it came out. We were in, so hotly anticipated, and we were. You know, they were. Keyboards. They were confused by it. Yeah. I think that record took them like two years to make because they were so wasted and it was just, you know, one of those things. The, those the things bad, can work, bad you know. Sometimes they can work and sometimes they're disasters. It didn't kill them, though. No. Um, because media is so localized back then, I've also found that like what is proto-punk in one place isn't necessarily mm -hmm. proto-punk in other places or, or punk later right. on. Uh, what about like The Doors? Because they're a band that a lot of people from LA will bring up as being kind of like a pre-punk thing, but um, you know, I, I don't think it's looked that way by people necessarily outside of Los Angeles around then in the same way. Well, someone like Patti Smith would look at it like that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You know, and I think anyone who like is a big fan of like, you know, interesting, original kind of dark music at the doors. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think, you know, the doors and the birds and what, what, what is it? LA was like, the Sonny and Cher, The Doors and the Birds were like, and Love were the bands that kind of sparked like live music in Los Angeles. And then mm -hmm. it kind of went away until the late 70s. And all those, you know, they're- But what about bands like the Turtles and the, what about, what about the Beach Boys and the Turtles? And, and yeah, but I'm stuff. talking about like the, the Hollywood thing, you know, like the, yeah. the Hollywood thing that became like, you know- Eventually more yeah, into the, came, the Hollywood that we got to go to. Yeah, which would mutate into yeah into the the late seventy mid seventies version of Hollywood. Right. So which means like we're in another dry spell right now because there hasn't been anything like you can go to in a nightclub in Hollywood for a while now. Well, now were they like the, the hair metal era? Was that was that the last for them? Age? Was that a golden age of sorts? And was that the last golden age of mm -hmm. of of West Hollywood Sunset Strip? That to to me that was um, um, the apocalypse, <laughs> <laughs> the Aquanet apocalypse. It was like it's over now, but you still had to like you know at the time you had to kind of still scratch in a little place for yourself amongst that stuff. I mean that's the moment that we inherited. It's so weird. I mean that's when we were you know late teens. Well, you know like when you and... when you like when there's kind of music or a group that maybe you don't like when you're younger for whatever reason you're prejudiced about it. Just like ah, and you, and you hate them. 
Um, and then many, many, many years ago, you realize, oh, they're good. I didn't, you know, I was jealous or whatever. Um, like Poison, for instance. Like that's oh, you a feel, you still, feel that way about Poison? No, they <laughs> still will really, really just bring back you the still, teenage you, angst and hatred. Like it's you still find them that to new, be putrid? Yeah, because there's that new arena tour that's going on. It's Motley Crue, Death Leopard, Poison, and Joan Jett. So I was been watching it online. I was watching like I saw Joan Jett goes on first, and they're like baseball stadium. And it's like, you know, I know she's a diehard lifer, but it's sad. It was like slow, just not into it, really bad, like misguided things like acoustic sets in the middle that are just awful. And then so like, but I'll give her a break. It's just like whatever, opening act. Then poison comes on full steam, full, and it's just like, oh my god this is the worst thing and like you know brett michaels like he's giving thumbs up to people in seats that aren't there you know that kind of arena trick looking up at. and um so they were heinous and i realized oh, i still hate these people and I, I don't know them as people but i really hate them and then and then when you see like Def leopard no then molly crew molly crew i found some of their footage and it was like you know, Mick Mars is great, and, and um, but you know, Vince Neil's voice, it's just, you know, I'm sorry, it's always been an issue. But, but, uh, then finally, this Def Leppard, who seemed like the Beatles compared to these bands. I mean, honestly, I mean, like, complete, it's like, oh, this is like real. I mean, it was bizarre, really bizarre. Oh, I, I, I do Leopard's advise real. going down that rabbit hole, but it's, I forget what it's called. It's like, the stadium something tour and it's those bands are I, I know it's, it's playing so far. I remember seeing the ad for it when we were at the stones it was blowing my mind but um oh, well, well also could, because um, now we're really moving for, very fast forward for a second but um, because poison opened for us in 1985 at the <laughs> at the country club in Reseda so it still stings when I see that and uh and I saw, um, and I also, I had the rare distinction of singing um, backing vocals on and playing guitar on uh, uh, Surrender with Cheap Trick live on stage in Kansas City and in a rock arena with the Melvins in the last five years. And they were supporting Poison in a 20,000 seat <laughs> arena. And it was packed. It was mind blowing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's whatever. It's bizarre. But yeah. Um, yeah, I liked your review of the show. And well, I, I just think it made, I still think, then I'm just, I was, if I look back, was I jealous? I was like, no, I wasn't jealous. I just hate them. And then seeing it again, <laughs> it's refreshing. It's like, oh, yeah, I just hate them. Well, did, I, 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 go on. No, sorry. I hate the way, well, I just I hate the way I, Brett I, Michael I, sings. Well, I just want to add that I, I like that you're trying to take accountability. You're trying to own your own emotions. I'm willing to like a look I, and take another look on. And you're willing, to, you're willing to call yourself out and try to figure out where am I? Where is my negativity coming from? And then you're like, you know what? It's not my fault. It's it's all them. They're just horrible. <laughs> they 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 deserve this hatred. Gabsky, yeah, what were you going to say, Damien? Did you? Well, I was going to ask about uh, Vince Neil's first band, The Wigglers. Did you guys ever play with them? No, 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 we wouldn't. They would have probably been a backyard cover band because they, they came they from that movement. Well, I think he was replaced by the singer of the Simple Tones, I believe, in the band. Oh, oh I didn't know. I, I didn't know Vince had any. Although Vince, you know, because I was very surprised that he like went to high school in Compton or something really weird and got stabbed at school. Mm. So it was like a different thing. But yeah, that would make sense because 
Simpletones were from La Mirada or Cerritos or something. That would make sense, but I'll have to do research. Ask, um, I don't know, who would know that? <laughs> there's also, <laughs> well, then there's also Nikki Six yeah. played in that weird Seattle pre-Screamers band that El Duce was in too, apparently. Really? I don't know. I don't know this. There's some LA and it's not the wait, upper wait, wait, Nikki Six and El Duce were in a band together? Apparently there's this band. It's not the Wiz Kids and it's not the Tupperwares, but there was like some sort of like band and they might not have been in it together at the same time, but they both did time. And it also featured uh, two of the Screamers as well. And then other people like Bill Rifkin was also the drummer for a minute as well. So it had like this crazy proto-punk Ross. Wow. Well, I guess we can find out. We can, we should, who would know? <laughs> we're going to redeem Motley Crue in absentia. Well, <laughs> Motley Crue were always, you know, Motley Crue, were, I mean, I only talk about this stuff because this coincided with the punk rock that was happening in Los Angeles. Every, everyone had to kind of coexist. And sometimes you would just, you know, everyone, you know, it was just like, you got to go to a Motley Crue show at the Santa Monica Civic tonight or, you know, what have you, whoever, mm -hmm. yeah, who was, who else was happening at the time? Well, that's, these are, these are things I wanted to ask you about because it really does feel like at a certain point, the violence in LA yeah. gets like so severe. Everyone kind of leaves a lot. Well, there's still shows, obviously punk yeah. shows, but like, it feels like it kind of just dies off and people have come on the show and talked about how this is period. And my argument has always been that Red Cross has always been a punk band and you just kind of had to wait for punk to come back around right. for, for to catch up with you guys. But you guys were always just doing your own thing. Like as hardcore is happening, glam metals happening, grunge is happening, pop punk resurgence, punk resurgence thing. All these things are kind of happening around you and you're just, you know, staying the course, putting it. Well, like, we had the knowledge right. that, that every, all that stuff was basically the same thing. Hmm. So it wasn't like, Oh, grunge is happening. Now we have to be grunge, or now we have to be hair metal. It's just all, you know, it was it was okay to exist in if you knew the origins of everything. I mean, even if the people in those bands were didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And all it those was come like back to Yoda. Punk. And, all, and all those things come back to punk too, right? Like all those people were weirdly, you know, influenced by well, Red Cross, but like, you know, by like you know, it's amazing how many people kind of come black flag, you know, like all of this stuff is like people that are coming out of this. And that's the thing about punk is that it perennially is this place where cool and interesting people that don't fit in right. to the world around them kind of find a place to be themselves and, and do stuff and have permission to do stuff as young people. Right. And, and I'm think... glad that it's happening again. Like, you know, there was that, you know, there's scenes of like young people doing, making weird metal punk bands and weirdo pop punk groups. And it's, it's cool that it's happening again. It seemed like for a while there was like, if you wanted to go to a show, some independent band, it would be like really hard to find. Or in the past in LA, you, you, any night of the week, you could have gone somewhere and seen someone, you know, an interesting group. Mm -hmm. Well, it gets driven back underground, you know, yeah. at, at certain points, and especially after it explodes and gets really popular. Yeah. It, it, get, it has to be built back up or something, I guess. When the hardcore punk bands that got really big became big and started playing the Palladium and the larger venues in Hollywood. Yeah, it seems like the cops were rioting and it got really violent, all those shows, and everyone was becoming really popular, and then it seemed to disappear. And I, I just think that wasn't there a time, Steve, the cops just wouldn't allow those big shows to happen. 
Wasn't I mean, there that Chief Daryl Gates was somehow um, yeah, we have, there was we some had corruption. Cops in LA. There was corruption in LA. I mean, like we were at the famous Elks Lodge riot. I'm sure. I think I told that story on the episode, whatever six or whatever my first episode was. But um, <laughs> you know, I mean, we it was a um, it was a benefit concert for the the mask mask nightclub and uh, and uh, you know, and there was the LAPD just completely unprovoked came in, uh, you know, I guess full like SWAT team, riot squad came rushing into this venue where there were maybe 300 people in a, in a venue that held, that could have held 2000 people. There was no, there was no, um, there was nothing wild happening. There was nothing threatening or dangerous. And it was in a rough part of town. So it wasn't like the punk rockers were the ones endangered. And, um, you know, and they just came in with their batons and were beating people in the head and um, unprovoked, and completely, I, totally unprovoked. And I was twelve, and my parents were in their car outside waiting for us to leave the venue. And um, you know, I mean, they got to see firsthand that um, there was something weird going on with the um, with the police force in LA at that time in regards to punk rock. And so I guess they kind of, in some ways. I don't know. I mean, did they win for a while? What happened with all that? Well, well, you know, the later version, like a couple of years later, when the hardcore bands became big, oh, Black Flag. And you remember we played TSOL at the SIR studios and coming yeah. out and the cops had beaten up people, but people had like, you know, burned up cop cars. It got really gnarly. And then like, that was a big show. It's like a big venue, like, you know, maybe 1500 people, which was big at the time. And then, and then about the same time, Black Flag and the, um, and and the Ramones played at the Palladium, another like three thousand seat show, like which was very big time. And the cops came again and beat people up. And Melanie Vaman got hit in the back with a with a billy club. She's you know oh, like, Melanie from the Muffs and the yeah, yeah. But I mean, they would just come and just beat people up. Yeah. And then they Random. did. They were successful at it. They kind of put it put it to rest for a while. But then that's yeah. Then there was hair metal. Then grunge. But like when hardcore became the biggest, when it became really big, is right when it became, yeah, it kind of had to stop. You know, well, it's interesting that, to think about the effect that the cop violence had on the scene, like scaring yeah. certain people away from these shows, making other kids mil more militant, more, yeah. you know, like it, it has right, a hardening right. effect on stuff. Yeah. It was sort of radical, uh, either, either, either turning people off or radicalizing them. Yeah. And the police really did harass. They harassed every time you went out in like, you know, early 80s, cops would harass you. It's just either throw you against the wall and like try to see if you have drugs on you or make some fucking comment or, you know, bust you for doing, you know, smoking weed or drinking. <laughs> but I mean, they were they were out to just just drive people off the streets. And they were kind of they were successful in Hollywood for a while. But I mean. I, I think they have bigger fish to fry because I know that the LA cops, it's the LA deputies. Um, there's a whole gang of, of LA cops that are corrupt that have involved in all this shady shit. So that stuff still exists. Mm -hmm. But we got to see it as kids, like when our parents parents got to see it too. That the cops were at the time total enemies, just completely horrible. Well, I think it's also, you know, not to harp on this, but I think it's that Manson yeah. effect as well, where there's a fear and also riots on sunset strips as well. But like right. there's this fear yeah. of youth culture that is so right. strong. And you see that in the coverage of punk early on in right. the mainstream media where it's like the punk cult and you have right. to like deprogram your kids from being in a punk. Like there's this fear of like 
what is this capable of? You know, right? What's happened? Yeah, like, people like, still worry about that same the same kind of shit about video games or you know any rap music. Um, yeah, I mean it's well, so it's wait, usually but okay. So, so so we're all parents, the three of us. That's what I'm saying. Like I have to entertain that stuff, and then realize that's bullshit. None of, none of this stuff is harmful. You know, whatever would be the rock and roll equivalent, the punk rock equivalent. You know, yeah, as like, a parent, I haven't been freaked out by anything. Yeah, like, and, and I don't mean to do this to you, Steve, because, like, I don't mean to make mockery of, of what you've been through or anything like that. But anytime something with my eldest son comes up, I think about talking to you, Stephen, and what you were up to at his age. Oh, and, yeah. and I'm like, you know, it's pretty mild, like, all these things considered. Like, and, you know, obviously, yeah. I've had other people on who, who is at young ages were involved in punk and yeah not necessarily in the best situations yeah. and i'm like yeah you know maybe sneaking up to play minecraft all night isn't the worst thing in the world right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well you know for me which was great my daughter you know she liked music and wanted to go to shows but i i was the parent that was completely happy to take them anywhere they wanted to go mm-hmm. i just took them and they didn't mind me being around i mean i let them do their own thing but you know, it was just like all anything I'll I'll take you to, anything you want to see. And it was just basically, you know, that was I think for me it was a more healthy approach than to make than to demonizing things that that I, that I didn't understand. Yeah. But she was in Hannah Montana. What 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 no what, what if she had wanted to go to like, you know, uh, you know, some kind of like really scary uh violence or tour groups like um yeah. Dobby Vanity and shit like that. Yeah. There's like yeah. creepy, creepy goth guys that like prey on 13 year old fans. Yeah, no, yeah. I would have been at, you know, distance. I would have been near. You would have been, you've been observing. Yeah, I would have taken them to the show. I would have been not too far away. Right. Because I mean, there are people, you know, there's, there's some really creepy, I think a lot of it was the Vans Warped Tour kind of groups, like in the later versions, there was some like really creepy, um, um, controversies mm-hmm. about some of the acts mm-hmm. and kids well and i think that goes back <laughs> unfortunately well that's music right like well yeah. kim fowley we talked about kim fowley yeah. and all the, the way people talk about kim fowley these days yeah and I, but it seems like everyone knew that you know like going right. back i've had once again kathy being on the show there's a few people that have been on the show that were just like i i you know alice bag as well being like yeah I, right. knew, I knew he was like a piece of shit the first time i met him right right yeah, I mean, you don't know how serious to take someone like that because their their delivery is so over the top. But I think there were people who who were vulnerable. He must well, make yeah. it a bummer. He must have been into you guys though, right? Like giving your sound and and being young kids. Oh, well, and... well, we, well, we were into him. He was like, you know, we really looked. We, we were really into Kempelli. We thought he was hilarious, genius. You know, <laughs> I mean, at the time, yeah, I I did. I, he was a well, I mean, the other other thing, I mean, like we have a different experience. We weren't um, 16 year old girls. We, we, mm-hmm. He would have had a different interest in us and um, not the same kind of um, 
you know, one that Alice Bag is critical of now. And and we didn't know it's necessarily we didn't know that shit half what was happening. Yeah, we didn't know to judge him about that then, you know. And but what he would do is like, you know, we would so like late 80s, we would cover three runaways songs in front of a thousand people in LA. <laughs> and then we'd get a call the next day at our parents' house, because I still lived with my parents, and it would be Kim Valley saying, I heard you played Neon Angels on the Road to Ruin last night. I've got three more just like it. And they're better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was really stuff like that. <laughs> That's what he we sent did. us. What, what about Steve? What about when he sent us the rock opera? Yeah, we yeah, were looking. Yeah, well, we were looking, considering him as a one of many people for producers. And I, when we were doing, was it Teen Babes or Neurotic Teen Babes or something? And yeah, he goes, I have an entire rock opera. And he sent it to us at our parents' house. Remember, it was, well, that was well, explain, but explain. And he had to explain that. He sent the manuscript. Yeah, the he manuscript. sent over. He sent over the manuscript to his rock opera roommates. roommates. For our for our consideration. <laughs> and I remember like being very open, and very disappointed, very disappointed. But um, it's been one of those those lost um, items from the past that I just I I can't get wrap my head around. I, I thought I knew where it was. And then I was at our parents' house getting some stuff from one of the closets where they still, where we still have like records and books and stuff. And I found the actual um, envelope. Oh, it, the was envelope empty. That... it was oh. empty. Oh. But I remember he asked for it back. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you hand know. typed it. You know, he's got to. The manuscript. I <laughs> yeah, love that. I mean, you, know, I, you know, it's like, yeah, it's it horrible. There's some horrible, really gross behaviors in those days. And, you know, that, yeah. So, so for me as a parent, I was like aware of all that shit. Like, it was like, you know, I'm going to take you everywhere and just kind of, you know, be in the back. And, you know, yeah. our parents, our parents, we didn't give them that option as kids. It would have been very odd. Some of the, some of the places we went to as kids. No, our parents, but our, but our parents did do that. I mean, like that's to say, like we they were at the Elks Lodge riot. They just right. went inside the venue, but <laughs> Dad literally rescued us at like the bottleneck point yeah. where people were trying to get out of the venue, and the cops were just waiting by the door, bashing people in the These head. These skinny little art weirdos, you know, that's who yeah. they were beating up, and girls yeah. hitting girls yeah, like, in the face with. <laughs> Mike Adam, the singer of middle class, got you know beat the crap out of him, him and his girlfriend this famous picture mm -hmm. of them with black eyes like these people were like this tall they were tiny little weirdos you know just but anyway so yeah, yeah. <laughs> well then the next but, wave of kids gave it back right like the next wave of kids that were coming into this thing were organized in some gangs in some cases were harder kids were tougher kids jocks yeah but you know it's weird a lot of those kids you know I never, I didn't really take them that seriously. I kind of thought it was like kind so of who are we talking cosplay, about? Cosplay, but I guess maybe get involved in some serious gnarly shit. Are you talking about like suicidal tendencies? Yeah, and, like, and then yeah. like that the Orange County gangs and you know punker gangs, the family yeah. and um, oh wow, oh, the that's... family. What was the family? That was uh, that circle eventually one. circle oh, one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we did gigs with those people. We didn't take them seriously. We just. Um, like Circle One was, I, mean, I remember we did a show at them at some really weird place. There was like 10 people there and they're outside for five minutes and somebody's shooting a gun. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I I don't know. The punk gangs. Yeah, I mean, was it? I mean, I'm. I know some of them probably. There were times that people were had rumored to beaten people to death and people getting busted for you know robbery and all this stuff. But it was still you know punk rock gangs at the time. It was impossible to take seriously. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, they obviously were dangerous. But we lived in the maybe that's why we never got beat up. I think that we had this weird experience that like, you know, we got to experience that first wave of LA punk rock, but we were as like little kids and these people were 10 years older than us, 10 and 15 years older than us. So we went to see X and the Bags and the Avengers and we were accepted in these little groups of people for like a year, a year and a half. Um, and almost like mascots to the older people. It was and cute. It was cute and it was really neat. But then when those people became alienated and disen- uh, sort of disenchanted with what the scene was becoming as, as people our age were then kind of taking over that environment, it was, it was weird for us because we felt more akin to people that were a, a decade older than us. Like our interests were more like theirs because we were still in 1973. We were still obsessed with Ziggy Stardust. But like the people in Circle One didn't know what Ziggy Stardust was. They had no interest in that. They were like football jocks. And um, they were just at some event where they could go beat each other up. It's the way we saw it, at least. I mean, maybe now there's some deep message and art underneath it all that I- Well, the original Huntington Beach scene, I remember that, like that when it first exploded. What was the band, The Screws? Remember that? That was like the first band that played at the church. They ended up having huge fights and then people stealing stuff. And it, it was it was insane. But I look back at that now fondly, though. I mean, I mean at the time, I was embittered. You know, you're coming on, you know, fucking up. Because it was our, there were people our age group. So we felt yeah. competitive with them, too. There were the people that were fucking with, with us for punk, being into punk rock a few years before. Mm. So yeah. that was a bitter pill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bitter pill yeah, but bitter you know, pill now i'm just now i love it all that's the funny that's the funny thing it's like <laughs> it, it, it's it's just i mean yeah that stuff i enjoy now i like all that shit i i was really pissed off about as younger i love hearing anything i like anything that comes from it but at the time that that shit you know the, our, our, when our peer group came in and kind of fucked things up, you know, that was, yeah. that was hard to take. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is you guys are so advanced, you know, you guys have been into <laughs> this thing already. No, I mean, I mean that legitimately. And like, I think that's the, you know, like, you, like if there were teen idols in punk, you know, yeah. like you guys were the first teen idols in punk. And like, you know, you talk to all these people that wind up being that next generation of kids that were your age, you know, and it's, you know, for me, it's like Ben Lee, I guess, like the way I looked at Ben Lee as a kid, like, oh my God, he's doing all the things I want to do. And he writes these amazing Mm. songs and he's my, by the time these other kids have caught, you know, start going to shows, you guys have already moved on or certainly, you know, we're veterans, you know, like you didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, that we when we're also kids so you just you don't like everything that's happening you don't you know it's just all confusing and weird but it i mean for me i think i think being in the rock band was one thing that kind of kept it all kind of uh on track just kept a little kids constant it was a constant it kept things on track for us it kept us it gave us it, it gave us focus it probably kept us out of jail 
And I, and I have to admit, like sometimes we would do and say and look a certain way to just to piss people off or to fuck with them. Trolling, as they yeah. call it now. I mean, I mean, we were always, I mean, we we're always very, very in, serious about what we were doing, what, what we presented, but sometimes in a very humorous way. And sometimes it was very, yeah, like a natural trolls who were. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I think it was fun to bait people. Yeah, and, that's, a, that's what know, it is. I mean, it's like, just a classic. It's, it's a snobby, if you can't, you know, it's just a snobby, obnoxious kind of way of keeping the fun in, in, in the whole thing. Well, yeah. and also that's part of punk, right? Like it's this right. weird territorial thing that once you find it, you don't want and all you want other people to find it, but not the people you don't like. You're like, right. not the dorks from my fucking school that I hate. But that's not just that's anything. I mean, it, it, but yeah, it was very much the the thing with punk. Like what I said before, I wanted everyone to discover the Ramones and all that shit. But like, I know it would have been, I would have hated the the Ramones. I would have blamed the Ramones had they those people actually did end up liking them you know yeah i would have turned on the people that i love for you know like I people think, i don't think you would have if they if they would have Not stayed them, true but, I mean, to their but you know no, but like, it's like but it, it seemed like the, the bands that we love they always kind of turned into something else once that you know, happened out, the yeah, their, their agenda became kind of skewed or they ran out of juice and like kiss turned into a teeny bop joke and david bowie went R and B, which now I like, but the time I know was, I do too. But at the time so it was like disco. It's like, like you just wait for your favorite artist to go disco because a lot of them did. And know, it was totally it was it was disillusioning, you know. And, you know, and think, we also forget that like popular music, like at the time of early punk rock, the very first beginning was just at the very tail end of disco, which seemed like it was never gonna go away. You know, just like, I mean, as now the, the stuff that's considered disco that kind of stayed around the, the cream that came to the surface, fine. But when every single music, all music you heard sounded like that, it was just, it just seemed like it was never going to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you guys keep aware or were you aware of bad religion? Like, he's obviously at one point, they're almost peers with you or contemporaries with you guys. But then, like, were you aware of this kind of like early 90s? LA kind of resurgence of like no effects Pennywise and, and bad religion obviously being part of that um well no effects I mean I, I'm um no not really I mean like well we were in the early 90s we were doing you know we were really making our um bid at major label you know success and we were in our own sort of post grunge world of trying to figure out how to market all this crazy shit we had um collected at this point and turned into something that as Jeff said he thought every you know wanted his favorite artists everybody to love you know and we and now was our turn to try to make that happen so you know bands like bad religion and no effects um to us I think the, a lot of that I mean it's funny we're on turn out of punk and I think that I think what you were I'm trying to stay on track with this I think the thing that you always kind of see as punk and Red Cross, I see it as my brother's just natural tendency to be a nonconformist mm -hmm. and and to do, you know, um, just do his own thing. And 
if there is a community or a scene that's starting to coalesce around something, he does whatever he can to avoid that. And <laughs> I'd I? always be like, and I'd always be like, what are you doing? You know, come on, we're fitting in finally. And he'd be like, ah, it would just like shed it like it was some nasty skin. But I would and have I, some musical reason, like I wouldn't but, like, you know. But, 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 you know, I just remember one time saying, I'm trying to find a community. Like, fuck community. I remember there's something <laughs> like that. He said that to me once. And I, and, you know, so at any rate, um, I would think that bands like no fan, I don't mean snobby at all. I'm, you know, I'm Facebook friends with some of these guys and whatever. But I mean, I think that we, for a long time, we thought of like, there's a lyric in um, a song on Neurotica that goes like, uh, no metal sluts or punk rock ruts for me. No, oh no. And, um, and I think that was the thing that Jeff was always trying to do. Like he wanted to, um, you know, didn't want to be how didn't want to be, you know, I think we thought that the punk rock thing in some ways, at least the graduating class we came from and people trying to put us into that place, we felt like it was a rut for us that we had somehow wanted to uh you know you move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, whatever. We we were had our restlessness. We had our we had our the way Bowie's desire for reinvention, but not necessarily that. You know, uh, we might not have been that uh, as uh, uh, sophisticated about it as um, <laughs> single minded and sophisticated. But uh, you know, at any rate, so I think yes. Yeah, so to ask us about it, if we related to those bands, I think we purposely were like had blinders on and we were just trying to do our own thing what about the yeah. melvins like did you have any interactions with them back then sure I mean, was, yeah. yeah well a, lo- a little bit i mean like uh buzz had moved to los angeles in 93 and um and then we had you know bill bartell in common who bill bartell passed before he could ever be on your show i think right a pat yeah, fear yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. unfortunately sadly yeah so like he would he definitely would have been a fascinating episode white flag yeah um and strong records what's it what's the, well you guys were on what's the label called how do you pronounce it oh gasatanka gasatanka sorry <laughs> gasatanka gasatanka was his label and yeah. that's what the put out the um Second you know record. the tater tots records and put out uh, uh red cross's um team babes from monsanto but they put out all of bill's white flag records but he was friends with those guys and uh, they came to i remember the first time i i think the first time i saw them they were jamming with yoko ono and sean lennon um sean at the roxy they came sean's band ema it was it was sean and russell simmons and from john spencer blood blues explosion and yoko at the roxy and at the end of the set, they brought up Buzz and Dale. And I don't remember what they did. They might have done like, don't worry, Kyoko. Or something. I don't know. I was blown away, you know, totally jealous. <laughs> I missed that. Very jealous. <laughs> you missed I saw, that? Yeah. I saw Yoko that was at the Roxy real. at the, the Rise tour, but I didn't see that. Yeah. Well, then maybe it was two nights because they right, jammed right. with her. They jammed. Wow. I mean, you might have been there. But um, yeah, I mean, no, but we had that in common. We didn't do shows with them. We didn't. We didn't play shows with them. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, yeah, there was never really. I don't really know that. You know, Mike has said like I would always be trying to find other artists to somehow, you know, coalesce with, and Jeff was not interested. 
Oh, I always wanted to find like someone who was really cool that, you know, I, I, I wanted a community too. It's just, I had strict standards, I guess at the time. I don't know. I, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I, you I did want a community? For the next cool thing. Always. I still yeah. am. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still am. I mean, I just, you know, I was a snob. I was completely a snob for many years. I'm not anymore. You're not. So, so, so you managed to so you managed yeah. to like cure yourself. Yeah. How how does one rebuild? Uh, uh, how does one cure cure themselves of snobbery? Self aware. Rock, rock snobbery. Rock snobbery. And yeah. I'm still a rock snob, but I, I don't. I would never. You know. Do you guys still like? Do you, do you listen to Jane's Addiction now? That's a good one. Yeah, because that, <laughs> they were the band that I hated on almost on a poison level. But then I but I changed my mind because um, I, I, you know, I usually don't I usually trip on people when I don't like the singer's voice. Mm. That's the thing. If I hate the singer's voice, I'll just be it just brings out the worst in me. And with with and when Sonic when not Sonic Youth. Um, um, what's up, Adam? Again, Jane's addiction Jane. came out. Yeah, I ended up liking them when they the first. Um, um, I didn't like them until the very first Lollapalooza, and I really liked them. Jane's and addiction, they, but they broke. <laughs> I thought they, they were. I thought they were great. I understood uh, it. I thought it was like a really good usage of like limited, um, like a like a real limited toolbox, making the absolute most out, of it. like the Perry Farrell. Yeah. this whole approach yeah yeah that's great he's really good um, at that well and they broke up but they've been back together for like two decades now. no i know and they so, were kind so. of that was like their first reunion I, I mean we even played a couple of shows with them we on did tour. well we we shared dc we sh well we not only that we shared an la weekly um best la band award right. with them 1988 i believe la oh, weekly we awards we tied <laughs> <laughs> which is very possible there might have been like some behind the scenes shenanigans that la weekly wouldn't let jane's addiction steal it from us <laughs> i could be wrong about that i don't but know but they were definitely but, uh, weird enough to like respect it wasn't it wasn't like there's nothing in common with James. I mean, obviously we had stuff in common with that. It wasn't like poison, like who are these people? You know? Yeah, we had friends in common. We, like, yeah. we, had fr we had friends that lived in that house that Perry was the um, Charles Manson of. The, yeah, yeah. Perry was like, had the lease on some big house and in Hancock Park and was and a bunch of people rented room, like closets and stuff and turned them into rooms. And, uh, uh, and a friend of ours lived there and, um, you know, so yeah, it was like living with um, like um, like a Joan Crawford character. Joan Crawford. Somewhere between Joan Crawford and Charles Manson, because it was yeah, sort of yeah. like a, a a cult leader. But um, yeah, it was yeah. our friend Jeannie, and she was like, "Oh God, Terry, he's such an asshole." He blah 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 blah, and like just. <laughs> but so that's how I knew about them. Well, that's that was a long time ago. Charming. I'm sure Perry's. I'm sure Perry's a fine gent nowadays. And no, um, I know. No, I mean even then, if I find even that's that's fine. You know, that's I like all that kind of stuff. Just the kind of like intrigue, and I and I guess it was like became kind of a soap opera at a certain point. Well, he had, and he had that weird kind of gothy pre Jane's Addiction man, like Psy. Psy, yeah, Psy, Psy, Psy yeah, Psy Psy That's it. But I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we saw him. We were, well, no, we were on at, at the on the Desolation Center um, documentary. Um, yeah. 
Sonic Youth, and we played with them in the Mojave Desert of the Generator Party. But have and, you? Uh, did you ever see their footage the Sonic or Youth. hear the Psycom? Did they sound like Jane's Addiction? What were they? No, it's kind I of haven't. Like, oh, go on. Sorry. No, I'm just saying I haven't seen the Desolation Center film. Still, I, I, I mean, I keep meaning to watch it, but I think I, they're I think in they, it. They, there's, a, they put out a record back then too, and it's kind of. I, yeah, it's kind of like you know, it's not industrial. It's it's not punk. It's not goth, but it's like somewhere, you know, it's it's, it's decidedly less funky than James. Right. Blair. Okay. Right. But so it's, it's very before, LA. Well, it's weird before he had what is Dave Navarro's probably not in it yet, is it? No, he's not in it. No, I think um, there that was like the the metal camp, and then there was like sort of the the more kind of like punk alternative type camp right, that yeah. came together and became James. And I wouldn't bring them up because. Last time you were on the show, Steve, when I re-listened, you oh, described them. You described them as rivals. So that's oh, why. Yeah, well, because I told you yeah, in our well. mind. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, you know, that's me. But uh, not anymore. Yeah, I, no, I love I, them. Well, and that's the thing is, like, I think that's you. You guys have had this incredible journey and interact with like every chapter of music history since you began as kids, right? right? Like. You know, like rivals could be like, you know, like you're vying for this spot every step of the way, like beside Nirvana, you know, at a different yeah. point or beside Sonic U. Like there's all these there's always these bands that you could like you could see Red Cross becoming that getting that spot type thing. But Red Cross, right. like and I guess Steve's putting it on you, Jeff, just continues doing your own thing. <laughs> into one of these things. Oh, I will. Don't worry. Wait, wait till the Shirley Jones reel comes out. On oh, yeah. That's, gonna, <laughs> that's really going to blow minds. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, I've talked to you guys forever and I would, I would like, I could do a whole podcast yeah. with the two of you uh, for the rest of my life. So, yeah. you know, anytime steve please do yeah, yeah let's do let's do volume two so yeah well, well andrew wanted me to i have to um before we go um but speaking of the history of there is going to be a documentary about us coming out i guess sometime this year born um, innocent yeah it's called born innocent the red cross story and um the the filmmaker's name is andrew reich he just happened to be texting us tonight and told me to please. He he's an avid listener to Turned Out a Punk, and um, and so it would be extra special to him to hear me um, stoke people's anticipation for that. And well, people that know about Born Innocent the movie or whatever, they thought it was going to come out two years ago. So it's well, still the working. Pandemic, out, so better the be pandemic. Good. The pandemic changed things yeah. for a lot of people. Well, I wasn't going to let you guys go yet because I had a couple more questions, including okay. a celebrity writing question about yeah. the documentary from one Christopher Murphy from the band Sloan okay. asking, oh, okay. did he make the cut? Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah. Dude, he, he, I sure not, he you'll did. hear about it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, well, yeah, they're not what? done with it yet. So let's, let's see. But also it's not my movie. It's because it's <laughs> oh, we, uh, you know, in Canada, I was just same thing happened to, look the same thing happened to me with the sparks documentary i was in that i was in that band for five years and i didn't make i didn't make it to the talking heads section well i so. got cut out of the dino jr documentary and you and me did the the uh we were there together that day that i got interviewed for that we played oh, the show together and I yeah yeah see these things but i i'm not sure about chris murphy i i hope so but i i don't really have much of a vote in these things i, <laughs> I think i actually had to sign something that i got no i got no uh 
Final Cut approval. No Final Cut approval. Yeah. Yeah, it's his movie. <laughs> but, you know, there are brothers in Canada. We've always had. I think we we're honorary Canadians, and we've always loved. Right. The first time I heard the term CanCon, I just wanted to be part of it. Well, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been very excited about this episode, and I and Thank I you. did tell some friends about it in advance, and it is like all the coolest people you're the coolest people to them i find including oh. chris including chris don't mm. ever tell him i said he was cool but well but I, and, and and i also don't want to say that i i'm not confirming or denying chris's i've only seen the the cut once and it was a long time ago so i can't remember i was kind I of remember. in a i was having an out-of-body experience anyways there was too much me or talking about me it was like <laughs> weird so i, I remember know, with but, sloan do you remember when we did that show with sloan and we were in um Ventura, um, and it was a total bus show. There was like no one there, like barely anyone there. And we both dared each other to play one song for the entire set. You remember that? The jam. Um, I think did they did like that? two songs, one song being like 20 minutes long. Oh, great. That was a great show. Those kind of shows that flop in Ventura, most musicians basically just like delete them from their memories of Steve. Yeah, Stern. I think I probably did. I probably did. But, uh, yeah, and Sloan, I love Sloan. They're they yeah, they're are... awesome. They're incredible. In fact, yeah. um, you say... guys, I might have to go because I think I have to go get something at pick up something for your wife. Okay, well, I will let you guys go. <laughs> you. I wanted to ask you desperately about Pig the band, but I will save that for the part two. Yeah, I mean, you know, by then I will probably I, there is a cassette. I still have every cassette I've ever recorded, and I have to go back into that closet, the audio video closet in our house. So I'll keep an eye out for it. Okay, well, we'll talk about this next time, uh, Stephen. Anytime, buddy. Please okay. let's not make it seven years before the next one. And Jeff, <laughs> okay. yourself as well, together oh, or wow. separate, you are always welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I had so much fun. So much fun yeah. to talk to another human human beings that was great thank you steven and jeff for coming on the show and you heard right there they're both welcome back for part threes or part two of this or whatever capacity they want because the mcdonald brothers are the rulers the rulers oh my gosh that was awesome all right speaking of awesome coming up on the next episode that you will hear on this feed another episode of from the vaults where i go back and bring back a, a lost episode of turn out of punk when i say lost i mean an episode you can't really find on itunes or a lot of the streaming services anymore one of the early ones and this episode features one of my best buddies and one of my favorite vocalists from the band Alexis on Fire George Pettit's very first appearance on turned out of punk from way back in I think it was 2014 as well. Yeah, I think it was 2014. George will be on the show. Alexis on Fire have, of course, put out a brand new fantastic record produced by Jonah Falco from Fucked Up, no less. The album is called Otherness and it is available now everywhere. Check this thing out. It is, it's awesome. Even if you aren't a fan of the other Alexis on Fire records prior to this one, I think this one is well worth your time and it's a, it's really cool to see your band's taking new to place. Anyway. You're going to hear this all on the new intro of this episode in a couple weeks. Probably poorly recorded in a hotel room as well. So I will save it for that. But that is coming up on the next episode of From the Vaults. And then on the next episode of Turned Out a Punk, formerly of the band Red Cross, formerly of the band Bad Religion, currently back in one of the greatest hardcore bands ever, The Circle Jerks, 
Greg Heston is on the show. It's a fun one. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for you to hear it. That is it for uh, this week's episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop this hate and violence towards people of different races or different religions or, or different ethnic backgrounds. Just just knock all this shit out because at the end of the day, fuck this fascism. The, we're not talking about political issues here. We're talking about basic human rights issues. People have the right to live free of violence and discrimination. So if there's organizations that are doing positive things in this world, get involved. Do what you can. You know, lend your time, lend your support, lend money if you can't. Well, you don't lend it. Give money if you can. Uh, these organizations are doing really good work, and you will feel better for doing it. And and anything is better than nothing. Doing something is, is better than nothing. Uh, this podcast remains a podcast very much in favor of giving people the choice of what they want to do with their reproductive systems. We support abortion on this podcast. That's full stop. Uh Go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine, do something. Punk is way better when you contribute to it. Look at look at Stephen and Jeff. They weren't even really teenagers, hardly teenagers, and they were out there playing music. And, and look where it took them. Look at all the amazing places they took that music. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. You don't. It just It's like literally dead weight inside you. And they can give someone uh, a miracle. You can give someone a new lease on life. A new life. Give someone life. So sign that organ donor card. And all this stuff uh, can get really hard to deal with sometimes. And, and, and just over too much to bear. And for me, I've really found that meditation helps deal with the overwhelming nature of the world we live in. Uh, I, I know a lot of people knew about this already. Meditation is a practice that goes back centuries and centuries but i didn't give a shit because i didn't believe in it and it took me a long time to kind of get to a place where you know i feel it's bringing me what i need you know it took a couple attempts i should say to finally have the meditation thing click but it's been worth it for me it really has helped me and it might help you too so try it there's lots of places to try it for free you don't have to do any specific app you don't have to do anything just give yourself uh, a shot at it. A few shots, because sometimes it takes a while. I think that's it. Remember, uh, I love you, and I will see you on the next episode. Is there anything else I forgot to say? No, I think that's it. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.